Hi, everyone. Welcome to Path to Glory, a Warhammer Underworlds podcast that focuses on competitive gaming, player development, and community growth. This is Amon, and I'm joined, as always, by Jonathan. Hello. And today we have two special guests, not just one. They both come from a city made of steel in the Midlands, not the north. <laughs> We've got Michael Carlin and Tom Bond. How's it going, everyone? It's good, yeah. Thanks thanks for having us on. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm annoyed you brought Mike, but hey-ho. It's in the north. <laughs> we need to get, a, get some triggers going. Tom, um, Mike has been on the show a couple times now, but this is your debut. Any words? Any words? Well, I, I know that you know the expression "save the best till last" is is quite a common one, so I appreciate you flattering me with that. Um, I know Mike sometimes takes a couple of goes before he really understands what's going on, so I understand why you had to have him on twice before our episode. So you know, it's fine. I get it. I get it. Coming out swinging. Any <laughs> rebuttal? Any rebuttal, Mike? Have you seen uh, seen how many trophies Tom's got with Godsworn? It's too easy, isn't it? It's too easy. <laughs> that you know, it is easy, but it's a tried and true, tried and true comeback. <laughs> um, okay, well, you know, super happy to have both of you on today. Um, apologies in advance if it kind of gets a little loud in here. I know that with four people in the in the uh, episode, it could uh, we may be talking over each other a little bit, but please keep that in mind. Uh, we're here to have fun, have some great conversation. And sometimes we get really excited. The topic for today is going to be talking about the most recent online event that occurred. Uh, Tom and Mike did very well, and we'll get into those details shortly. But before we do that, I know Jonathan likes to get into his segment where we talk about community shoutouts. So, Jonathan, please take it away. Yeah, sure. I had a couple of things I wanted to mention before we get started. Um, for reference, this episode is recorded on... May 31st, 2020. Um, we're currently in the uh, Rothcorn and Wormspat meta. Um, we haven't had any updates or anything. Um, so just still in that card pool. Um, and that's what the that's the card pool that the event took place as well. Um, my first shout out is I wanted to mention that the Best Coast Pairings uh, team has partnered with uh, Down Under Pairings which I guess was the Australian sort of version of it. Um, and what they're going to be doing is they're going to be implementing a lot more stats um, to their um, tournament pairing system. So um, I'm excited to see what kind of stuff they're able to come up with. Um, one of the things that they're able to do is um, they're able to get player stats a lot better. So like you can see like all of your personal stats, they're going to be able to rank players and things like that. So I think all right now, a lot of the big events are using BCP. Um, but I think if anyone's not, um, they should consider it. So, and if, as, as we get more information on that, we'll uh, be sure to share that. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention was yesterday um, on Saturday, I streamed a uh, Warhammer Underworlds online uh, event. They have monthly and weekly events on a sort of fan-made Discord. And um, I was asked by the guy running that, whose name is uh, Envision on there. Um, he's doing a great job. They have um, monthly prizes. I think the winner of the monthly event gets $100. Um, and then it might be like 60-40 for third and uh, second or second and third and um, so that was pretty fun to do it was a lot of uh, thorns and magor 
Um, I think the last, I think the semifinal was Thorns versus McGuire twice, and then the final was also Thorns versus, versus McGuire. But it's kind of a classic matchup, uh, so it was, it was a lot of fun to watch. Um, and Thorns ended up taking it. So <laughs> um, you can see the video of that on our Twitch, um, and uh, we'll be sure to have a link to that uh, Discord channel where they do the weekly events. The structure is they do a weekly event, um, I think they do three of them, and then they have a monthly event, and the top performers from the weekly events will qualify into the monthly event. So it's pretty cool, and I'll, uh, I know I plan to try to hit at least one of the weekly events uh, in the next month. Very cool, very cool. Um, I'm actually really glad you brought up the Briar Queen and Underworlds Online because I, I, I know that it's kind of met with some sort of uh, contention online, especially on Facebook. I know that Justin Lanigan actually dropped an article, or not an article, a video on his YouTube channel where he's talking about whether he believes it's the right move or not. So if you haven't seen that, check it out. But since we have Tom and Mike on here, I wanted to get your opinions. What do you think about the Briar Queen joining online uh, Underworlds? Tom, let's start with you. Um, I think first off, I, I think it's really cool that they're doing, they're supporting the, the competitive side of it so well by doing regular tournaments, because that's really the thing that gets a lot of people excited about the game is getting the opportunity to compete, right? So the fact that they're supporting that with weekly tournaments and monthly qualifiers just seems good. And it's already getting me like entertaining the idea of uh, dabbling a bit more in Underworlds Online. As for the the Thorns, um, so not releasing it in order and releasing different seasons, Warbands at the same time means you get you, you get a crossover of mechanics. That's, that's just a fact. So things like magic that wasn't originally present in the Shades Biometa is. Um, these warbands, when they were released or designed, were designed to be balanced around a set of cards that, that don't exist in Shades by but would have existed in Nightbolt. So the, there's there's that potential issue where the the warbands and the cards that were there to keep Thorns in check or vice versa, give, give Thorns some strength, aren't, aren't going to be the same in Underworlds Online as they are um, as they were in the in the tabletop uh, version. It means we're going to get new matchups with different cards, uh, so it'll be it will be a different experience. Uh, a lot of us, like I said, when, when we started playing with Thorns, were used to matchups with Curse Breakers, and and as as Nightbolt progressed, more matchups with those warbands. Whereas we're going to see a lot more matchups with um, Thorns and other chased by warbands which is interesting so there are there are some cool positives about this um i guess the caution that a lot of people have is that thorns have historically been a very powerful warband um and the shades by warbands um have on average uh not had some of the strength that newer warbands have had and obviously great players have made great decks and and this is sort of skewed and some sometimes you can do very well with older warbands and things like that but in general Feels like the power level's gone up. So sort of throwing a a more modern warband into the mix with a lot of older warbands, I think the controversies come from will the Briar Queen be too strong? Will it dominate the meta? Will other warbands not be able to compete? And on top of that, you know, you buy the new warbands, right? And if you can if you've got a choice between buying uh, thorns and later potentially buying chosen axes, um there's a worry that it interferes with with the Shades by Meta and warbands that 
could have done well in Shades by and now will not get their chance to shine because Thorns have come in early and potentially disrupted the the meta that could have been or the meta that was when Shades by originally came out. So it's going to be difficult. I can't predict what's going to happen because we've never seen Thorns played in this setting, but um, it's certainly going to change up the game from the way we experienced it initially. Yeah, I think that's a good point is the the viability of older warbands, especially ones in season one that you mentioned chosen axes. I think the other one that has not been released is the reavers. Mm. And so, you know, there's this overemphasis of universal cards kind of forming the backbone or core of these, uh, season one warbands. And so having these newer warbands come out with just more powerful faction cards does seem like a big imbalance. Um, I'm maybe more excited about the intermingling, but I'd like to get Mike's opinion. So, my biggest concern is what this says about how the game is selling. Like, it seems like, and, you know, from everything that was said, their original plan was to release all the Shadespire Warbands and then move into Nightbolt, go in order. And this looks like, I mean, I might be wrong here, but my take on it is they're releasing the Thorns because they kind of need quick sales, probably because the game's not doing so well. And that has me worried about if the game's going to, keep going if it's going to be future viable um if the company making it have to at some point you know if the sales aren't good just cut their losses and move on to another game and that would be incredibly sad you know i want the game to do well um i like tom said i really like that they're doing these uh, online tournaments and that they're uh, they're kind of trying to kind of support the competitive aspect in that regard um and yeah actually genuinely i'm kind of interested like if there's a hundred quid prize in line i could i could play some games and see if i could have a chance to do that that would be nice um but yeah, I don't know. I, I everything else has already been gone over. I I, I I I just don't want the game to die. The people, the developers who make it, seem like really nice people, and I I I want the game to do well because I I genuinely think the digital game doing well actually helps the physical game, um, and I want you know nice people to do well. So it would suck if it dies. Uh, I completely agree. It would be a blow to the community. Jonathan, what about you? What are your opinions on Thorns entering the meta? Um. I think uh, I think along with everybody else, I think that I initially was uh, a little bit surprised by it. I do think that I, I think I don't think it would be incorrect to say that historically they've been the most successful of all the warbands in the game. Um, I think they've won more grand clashes or come second in more grand clashes probably than anybody. Um, so I think we know they're strong. I think that in the current online meta. Before they came out, I think Magor's Fiends were pretty clearly the dominant force. And now I would say, with the current card selection, it's probably down to those two. Um, which, you know, I don't know, that may actually be an improvement. If before Magor's, it might have been Magor's and Skaven. I think Skaven can still um, definitely compete, um, mostly due to the card selection. Um, I mean, Thorns don't have a lot of the tools that they really want, um, but... I also kind of look at the game kind of in it's I think it's still like a fledgling game like we don't have the full first season we just have a selection of maybe like 90 of each kind of card objective ploy and upgrade um, and we don't have a restricted list yet so uh, from my perspective there's so many other things they have to worry about other than game balance at this stage if the thorns coming out is going to get them sales. Um, I know they timed the release of the Thorns with the online sale of the Skull Throne uh, Steam sale. Um, if, you know, I think the game's like $17 right now, or it was last week. 
Um, so to me, if this makes the game, if this does make the game more popular, and then they're able to, you know, improve any kind of balance issues with a universal drop, then I'm all for that. Um, I do think that it's, I do think that there was a timer on the Shadespire Warbands anyway. Um, I mean, I would say that orcs and skeletons and, um, to some extent, even Steelhearts had already started to fall off with the latest release, like Magors and Skaven and Barstriders, I think are probably just better. Um, so, and then it's not, you know, even if the, the Dwarves and the Reavers had come out, I don't know if, I mean, next it would have been Thorns and Cursebreakers. So we would have been basically right where we think we might be now. Um, so I, I think the, I think the team has to make a lot of different choices and, I think balance is, I think individual faction balance is always going to be an issue with this game. And uh, I think it's something we have to not get hung up on. So, I don't know. That's yeah. all I got. <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was good. It was good. Uh, three three hot takes. Um, obviously, you know, pretty comprehensive answers all around. So, I'm not going to tip my hat in. I think, you know, they covered it pretty clearly. But uh, interested to see what your thoughts are on uh, the Briar Queen joining Underworlds Online. So uh, please let us know what you think. But um, either way, it looks like they're here to stay. Uh, so let's move on to the event. There was an online event that occurred, and uh, 64 people, 62 people uh, from all over the world. We had some great players from the UK, the United States, Europe, Canada. Uh, and I, I don't know if there was anyone from the Down Under. There was. But... There was. I ended up playing them halfway through the game. They were like, it's four in the morning here. Yeah, for sure. Shout out to the Southern Hemisphere. Unfortunately, Jonathan and I weren't able to play. Uh, we both had actually familial engagements. Uh, so I think, Jonathan, you came down to Houston. We ended up actually being able to hang out. And so we've got some stuff in the pipeline for the YouTube channel. So be prepared. For me, it was just a kind of hung out, spent some time with the family as well over the weekend. Mike, what were your thoughts going into this event? What was your whole thought process um, and why did you pick the warband that you did oh so that's actually quite a that's quite a tricky one so i picked molog because i really like how he plays um i i love drilling the game down to this single fighter and like you're kind of all or nothing on you either succeed by him doing well or your opponent has a very obvious way of stopping you just killing him um I, I, I love that playstyle. I originally, when I was uh, prepping for this tournament, it's about over a month ago now, I planned to make a kind of um, control Molog list, um, relying on just Term of Glories and Cryptic Companion to uh, get me enough glory to kind of uh, outpassive my opponents. But I found very quickly during practice that it was just much, much worse than any Hrothgorn uh, offerings. Um, Realised that I still wanted to play Molog, so I wanted to force something to work with him, work with him, and then kind of switched into an, a, a much more aggressive build. Um, the aggressive build did it did fairly well in testing, right? It wasn't a blowout. Um, it, it had games where like the stars aligned and everything went right, and, right, and yet it still lost. So I, I it was having some misgivings, but I it was one of those. I just really wanted to play him. He's really fun. And I kept improving and I kept hammering away. Like every game where I lost, or even if I won, I could see some a change I could make to improve. And I got close to the tournament it was about two weeks before, and I had to kind of make the, the final call: Am I sticking with him, or am I doing a last-minute switch to something more meta? You know, I could have played Curse Breakers, and I'd have probably done fairly well. But I, 
my mug's done. I kept with it. I kind of trust. I, I wanted to. I wanted to not do the mistake that me and Tom have done in the past, where we switched last minute um, to something else just because we fairly confident it's a stronger meta read. But we lose all our kind of individual practice now, individual skill. That is honestly, I think that makes more difference than picking the meta thing. Um, so yeah, I paid him because he was fun. But I, I legitimately thought he could do well. Like I wasn't going in like putting this massive like um, millstone around my neck that I'd have to carry through. I think Molog is uh, is a is, is a good warband. I don't think maybe he's the best, but I think he's a good warband. And one of his strengths, and this is the strength of any of the kind of good warbands that see a bit less players, people forget how to play against him. He's a very specific problem your opponent has to solve. And if you've not done that in a while, and if you don't know how your deck specifically does into it, you you can just make mistakes that you wouldn't normally make, and I get to play off that. So. Yeah, my expectations going in were I, I was I would have been very happy going in if I went three one. I was expecting about a two two, and I was thinking if I go three one with Molog, I get to feel great. Um, so yeah, that was that was what I was at going in and why I picked Molog. Uh, so to clarify, you went with Molog because of a uh, personal choice. You really <clears throat> enjoy playing the Warband rather than uh, potentially a medical. Yeah, absolutely. You enjoy hurting other people, don't you? And you know Molog's a good way to to damage other people's morale and their emotional well-being. So you thought, that, that's where we're going with this. Once you score victorious jewel, you have mentally broken them. <laughs> <laughs> Just make Fecula seem like even more of a dead weight. Now she loses me three glory. <laughs> Ouch. Speaking of Fecula, uh, Tom, you went with the worm spat. Um, what were your reasons behind selecting this warband? And uh, was it a meta read or was it more of a personal choice like Mike? I think the same. I think it was a personal choice. I, I would never really have gotten into Worms Bat at all if I think Max Bernstein hadn't put a call out for people to review Warbands as they came out. And I saw, yeah, I don't know, I, one of the Warbands that was left when he asked was, was Worms Bat. I was like, Fine, I'll, I'll do that, whatever. I guess that means I've got to play them now. Um, and I did. And I spent a long time playing them so that I could provide some sort of legitimate commentary on it when we did that episode. And in doing that, I actually started enjoying them and um, and gradually started to have more success with them. So I kind of fell into playing a warband that isn't at all like the warbands I'd normally played, um, but still had a little bit of that underdog energy that I love. Um, and I just, it got too close to the, the tournament and I'd put more time into them than anything else. Um, I had adapted some changes to it from decks i'd seen do well at other online tournaments and actually you know you, you tell yourself objectively when you look at the warbands and the cars i'm like oh this isn't this isn't top tier this isn't one of the meta warbands but when i actually look back at the results i've been having in practice and things I'm like, actually, this, is, this is doing pretty well let's let's give this a shot rather than you know s switching out for grimwatch at the last minute maybe we don't do that maybe we play what we practiced um so that's what i went with Awesome, yeah, and, and and I think uh, a lot of people, Max included, and perhaps even even me to a certain degree, though, um, is that you know we kind of thought the Wormstown weren't going to do very well in the meta, and it's it's been very refreshing to see that um, you know you along with Zach and and some of the other people who did really well with them online events um, have continued to do well with them and and do well and even in the online leagues, so. Uh, I imagine that as we transition uh, to different type of meta with the introduction of the two new warbands who look fairly aggro, uh, Nurgle will probably still be in a top spot. Yeah, they like to get hit. 
Yeah, it, it is interesting that over the course of the two recent events, the first one being the 30 person and the second one being 62, there were only five uh, worm spat players, but they had a win rate of 76%. So it's pretty, pretty <laughs> crazy, really. Broken war band. Band yeah. them all. Yeah, 16 and 5 was their record. So that's, I mean, that's pretty incredible. The average round before they lost was 3.6. So that means they either made it to the third or fourth round before losing a game. So, uh, I mean, those are actually pretty incredible stats. And I know that all of those players, I think it was, I think that was over four different players. I think they knew, I think they were, they had put the work in, which I think is really cool. You got, I, know, I know Tom had played it a lot. I know Matt Angry played it a lot. Um, and I think uh, Zach Newcomb was another one, and I forgot the other one. But Sean, There was a chap called Sean that played at the same time yeah. that I did. Sean, I can't remember his surname, but he, yeah. I think he went 3-1. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's very interesting to see a warband that initially everyone thought was really bad uh, turn out to have be one of the more successful of the last couple of events. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and and speaking of, you know, events and, and the kind of the how doing well at these events, uh, based off the previous event that we covered in the last episode, Jonathan, what did you think was going to um, do well? Um, I mean, I know we know the results, but what were your thoughts prior to the event finishing? Um, I, I guess I thought that in a lot of ways it would be similar um, to the previous one. I, I think uh, I think the previous event really showed us how good Rothkorn can be when he plays uh, kind of a hard control um, or control aggro flex. Um, so I was expecting to see a lot of him. I maybe expected to see more of him than we did. Um, I think there were a number of Gitz players. I wasn't surprised by that. I thought, I mean, I think we know what's good right now. I think we know Rothkorn, Grimwatch, Thorns, Nurgle, um, and the only war bands that we didn't have at the two at either of the two events were Steelhearts and Godsworn Hunt. Um, so, right. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I would say from a meta perspective, I wasn't too surprised. I think it's cool. There were a few players that brought um, the skeletons and uh, Skaven. Um, I know I was one of the Skaven players at the first event, but there were a few more um, at the second event as well. Um, curse breakers were pretty popular actually there were six curse breaker players i thought that was interesting um how did they do they didn't do very well um they had a win rate of uh 37 so actually pretty terribly <laughs> i don't know if this is going maybe too deep too soon but like it, that a lot of the curse breaker builds felt like they were a reaction to a lot of horde warbands and objective play being well and being able to ping spell damage off of all of them. If if a lot more beefy fighters are in the play, sort of in the in the in the meta now, that might be why curse breakers are struggling because there aren't actually as many hordes that they're coming up against. And even when they are, that matchup was never a gimme for them anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the time curse breakers will rely on. Tome of Offerings coming out early and then getting a bunch of kills against those Horde of Warbands because it's hard to outscore a good Thorns or Grimwatch player. Yeah, I actually found that one facet to be quite interesting. I mean, you know, Curse Breakers have historically done well. So I guess my question is, 
what was their average win rate at the event? I mean, were, were did people just not want to play them? Um, or were the people who took them uh, perhaps not as skilled as perhaps people who were taking Wormspat, Molog, and some of the other higher-performing warbands? Yeah, I mean, I think that's hard to say. Um, I don't know if I know any of the players that chose um, Curse Breakers, but um, I know that in the first round there were, I think, uh, two Curse Breaker mirror matches, which definitely didn't help their numbers. <laughs> um, so that knocked out two of them right away, you know. Um, and I mean, this is such a small sample size that I don't know if this is, I don't think we can really say, you know, Curse Breakers are out of it. I think maybe, um, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people are just tired of playing Curse Breakers. Um, they're an older war band, and I don't think they're obviously powerful. I think they're viable. Um, but there's so many war bands to choose from now that uh, a lot of the individual players that, you know, I know of and I would have said, you know, I think one of these players is going to win the event. I don't know how many of them, I don't know if any of them chose Curse Breakers. And we can always be surprised. Um, but I don't think we had any Grand, Grand Clash, previous Grand Clash winners picking them, for example. So right. I, I know that, uh, so one of my uh, first day opponents was playing Curse Breakers. And honestly, he was the uh, second best player I faced in the whole tournament, including day two. Um, he, he played an incredible set against me. He, he's the outside of the final. He's the only player who took a game off me. And one of the games I won against him, I won by one glory. Um, it was a, it was a stupidly tight set. And um, so I know that it's weird, though, because I know that he played really well against me. But then we were kind of keeping in touch on uh, Discord as the day progressed. Um, just, you know, you kind of do that sometimes for your opponents, just like, how are you doing and that type of stuff. Um, and he lost his next two games. And I'm like, I don't know if he just got stupidly unlucky because I don't, I, when I played him, he did everything perfectly right. I actually think Molog is favored into Curse Break because it's one of Molog's happy matchups because even uninspired, you can usually use the knockback or your distractions to one shot any of them with lethal hexes. Um, and they, if, if, if you prioritize killing Amis, which you generally do, um, they, they, really struggle to kill him even under ideal circumstances so i it's it's it is possible it was small sample size and luck because i know at least one player who took curse breakers was good yet had a really bad record yeah a lot of it can just be luck of the draw too at these events like if you you know if somebody plays against mike in the first round and then they play against you know thomas convoy and then they play against you know or like it, it can just be that, that's the cool thing about these online events is i think that a lot of the quality of player um, is very high because most of the people that are playing, um, for one, it's, it's, it has more of a global reach, and then um, a lot of the people that are on there play a lot. Um, so I, I don't. It's it's difficult to say, you know, if that means anything concrete for a particular warband, but um, they definitely didn't do that great. <laughs> um, it looks like they ended up losing to couple of warbands that you, we wouldn't have expected like the skeletons the chosen axes far striders magors um they Who did they manage to beat <laughs> they had a 100 percent win rate of course it's just one game but it's against <laughs> gets and grimwatch and eyes of the nine mm. so they went 50 percent against themselves of course profiteers <laughs> skates wild hunt uh and man trappers so um but, you know, it's only 23 matches, so there's so many different uh, factors there that uh, could come into play. Absolutely. A lot of that, yeah, a lot of that information could have just been, like, on the 
lower side of things just because of the way the dice rolled and the matchups and stuff. So yeah, yeah good point. So I don't I don't think they're out down and out personally. Um, but um, you know they didn't break in the top thirty, which I thought was quite interesting, uh, just from this event itself. Um, so um, let's talk about your decks, right? So you you guys picked warbands that you wanted to play with. You had a lot of practice into. Uh, in some cases, you really like playing them. What was your strategy on taking a warband and making sure that it could handle the threats in the meta? And actually, before we get into that question, um, what do you think are the threats in the meta? Um, you know, we'll we'll start with you, Tom. What were your what do you think are the top three threats in the meta right now? So, when I was so the way I broke this question down when I was making warband was right. How do I play into your standard archetypes, and are there any of those I'm worried about? Um, and I honestly felt like once I into aggro, even if aggro is strong, it's just the way the warband plays, that should be fine. Um, so I didn't feel like I needed to spec my deck too much into that. Um, objectives, again, I felt like because you pack a lot of, lot of ping damage and you've got a lot of ranged attacks and there's some scything attacks in there, and a lot of disruption in the game, I wasn't too worried about that. It, it was more control play I was worried about because... Um, Noble lack the kind of speed and early damage to um, to kind of kill some of these big threats. I guess when I'm talking about control, I'm talking more specifically about the kind of control that won the event. Um, so when I was worried about going up against tomes, I was like, right, the the classic where you beat tomes is you you kill the tome bearer. Um, and for my deck personally, I felt like I struggled to dish out enough damage quickly enough to stop the tome bearer. So that's one of the that's one of the meta threats I was worried about. I was worried about tomes. Not necessarily a meta threat, but having had to practice against Mike Smolog, I was definitely worried about that because it's a similar problem. Um, lots of wounds, gets in your face quite quickly, and that's I'm not ready to fight immediately. I, I want to get my Inspire off before I fight. So one meta threat, big wound fighters, I think I was worried about. I was curious rather than worried about the objective matchup because objective play has been dominating the meta for quite a while. A lot of objective surges have been um, dominating the meta for quite a while. But I think I was actually quietly confident about that matchup. I felt that actually it was easy for me to inspire. And once I'd got Septimus and Golgot in the middle of a horde warband inspired, I would be fine. But I, I was, I guess, in terms of meta matchups that I was considering would be good. Uh, the classic Thorns Grimwatch was up there, and that was something that I had prepared for. Um, other than that, I'm not sure there was anything I was overly concerned about. Not a meta matchup. I was really curious about how the mirror would work, um, but I never came across it, so I still can't really answer that question. Um, I don't think there was anything else. Curse Breakers, actually... Yeah, having said that, I only played them once at a tournament. I really struggled into them because they can reel off a lot of damage early with a good hand, and I struggle against that as well. And it's ping damage, so it's more difficult for me to reduce it because I can't use my shields to to bring that down. So maybe rather than me saying these are the three things I thought would be at the top, these were the, the things I was most worried about for me uh, was big wound fighters that I couldn't kill, uh, early aggression that would get to me before I inspire, and then I guess the objective matchup just because that's been dominating for so long. Those were the things that I was worried about. Sure. Well, speaking of big wound fighters with early aggression, um, Mike, what was your what were your thoughts going into um, the meta? Like, what did you think you were going to do well into, and perhaps what were you dreading? So, 
I'll say what my top three, um, the, the top three things I thought were generally strong, and then I'll just talk a bit more about specifically what I was worried about. So I thought Frothgorn, uh, both the Tome and the uh, the more um, Duncan, is it Duncan Bills? Um, his kind of aggro slash control flex deck, that was mm-hmm. really nasty. So both versions of that, Frothgorn, kind of as at the top of my, I think it's the best card in the, uh, best warband in the meta. Uh, second, honestly, uh, this isn't even just specific to me, or specifically into me, it was a nightmare, um, but the um, Amberbone Gits deck that Jimmy Molini, I think Jimmy Molini came up with it, um, is an absolute nightmare. I think it's really, really strong. It, he uses um, easy surges off the scurries from like temporary victories to capture stuff like that to equip glory, and then he uses that glory to kind of make or any of his little fighters into deadly threats that can then score loads of glory of Amberbone weapons. It's a really neat nasty deck to deal with um third honestly i think there's a big drop off to third so those were the two things that i thought were overall the strongest and then i think there's a lot of stuff that's kind of just generically strong if i had to pick one that i think uh was generically strong going to the tournament to put third probably lady harrows i think harrows are just consistently a very good warband and then they they do really well against people who don't know how their objectives work if you know how their objectives work, you suddenly, like, they lose a lot of their power. Um, but in a, in a big tournament, it, it's difficult to always know how every warband scores, and they will prey on that. Um, specifically for me, my biggest fear was the Amberburn gets Jimmy deck. It was a nightmare. Every time I practiced into it, he just wrecked me. Um, I even had a game where in my first activation of the game, I killed Zarbag, scored Victorious Jewel, and then lost the game. That that's That's how those practice games went. Um, so I'm very glad I dodged that matchup. Um, I actually was pretty confident going into Frothgorn. Um, I know um, the final didn't go well for me, uh, but literally played a warm-up practice game against Benny uh, before the tournament where I killed his Frothgorn in Activation 3 of the game. And uh, I played a Frothgorn in my first game, uh, my first match on day one, and it was pretty much the same. Like um, within the, the, I think the latest I killed was Activation 2 in Round 2. Um, I do think... If like it's a control Hothcorn and the Molten Shard pits me, I'm in trouble. But the the reverse is also true. Like, if I go wide, like he's in trouble. So yeah. Right on, right on. Um, so I guess now that we're talking about you know kind of how you prepped for it, what what did your deck look like? What was your strategy? Um, I know you dropped an article earlier this morning, mm-hmm. and so um, for those of you uh, who are uh, liking to read very long articles that are great, check out Mike's. Um, that's his forte for sure. Uh, but let's go. Let's go ahead and talk about it. What, what what was in your deck? How did it do? Or not how did it do? But you know what was the strategy? So the general, the the very general broad strategy is to make have Molog attack as many times in a round as possible, um, and you are less worried about having to stack those attacks for accuracy because if you make four 50-50 attacks in a round, then odds are two of them will go through. And if you are stacking, if you do have some accuracy cards in there, so I had stuff like Haymaker, Prize Vendetta, Potion of Rage, Foul Temper, then for attacks you specifically want to hit, you can make them quite odds on. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it, it was a, it, the general plan was super aggro, but I put a lot of tools in there that let me play differently depending on matchups. So I had three copies of Distraction. I had Distraction, Nightmare in the Shadows, and Molog-specific Predatory Growls. I also had Restless Prize and Mischievous Spirits. So if I'm playing into a hold objective deck, and honestly, in a very real way, almost every single deck now has some variant of hold objective in it. Uh, because even if you're not running Temporary Victory or Supremacy, you're often running Cryptic Companion. 
you're often running something that cares about being on those tokens or frenzied search um and being able to completely deny that uh, like your opponents from using them properly is is such an advantage like i i, I could miss every attack with monog but if i position him in a way where they can't get an easy attack back then i just i just stop you scoring all your end phase cards anyway without having to without without my dice working um the big weakness to my overall deck strategy with that regard is that Hrothgorn doesn't care about objective tokens at all. In fact, the well, technically he does, but he only cares about them in order to destroy them. So Mischievous Spirits and Restless Prize are wasted against him, and the distraction cards go down a lot in efficiency against him. Um, my general plan into that is to just basically be a big brick brick, brick aggro player who just goes in and hits him in the face, uh, which usually works. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't. Awesome. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Jonathan, any, any follow-up questions or comments to that? Um, I don't think so. I think um, I think looking at the deck, I think that all of that makes sense. Um, I think it's probably the best that a, a Molog deck can be right now. I think it has some cool choices, I guess. I thought Fading Form was a really interesting one. Um, makes you immune to the lethal hexes, but I could definitely see that being really useful if you're expecting to get Amber boarded. Uh, I actually got that from a man uh, when we were practicing. A man was like, you know what you should put in your deck? Fading form. And initially, I thought he was joking. And then secondly, I dismissed it because it seemed bad. And then thirdly, I realized he was right and put it in the deck. <laughs> yeah, when it when it's good, it's amazing. Mm. So, yeah. I will never, ever tell you I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> You're too big for that. You would never do that. No, 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 no. Um, okay, well, thanks for giving the breakdown on that. Tom, how about you in the worm spat? What was your design strategy and, and what was your intended game plan? Okay, so I think I, I realized quickly that full control, I, kind of the same as, as as Mike, that full control worms that were actually too easily disrupted and other things did it better. So there was always going to have to be a core of aggro around this. And equally, if you are not in the fight, then you're not taking advantage of the the mechanic that makes worms bat so frustrating to play against. You're not taking advantage of their damage reduction. But it's really strange because they're if you're going to play them aggro, they play in this way where they actually they don't want to fight until they've powered up. Um, and once they power up, they're incredible, but they, they do struggle a little bit before that inspired stage. So I wanted a an objective deck that didn't really need to hit the enemy to to score, but a power deck that could take advantage of the glory that it scored to then start hitting the enemy. Um, so. The, the objectives in there, there are two that require kills, but they sort of, I've tried to make them the most, the least restrictions on those kills. So I've got, um, I've got like a strong start and unexpected pitfall. So you can score either of them with lethal hexes, with gambits, or with, with just hitting people. So it's not like one of these cards that requires your fighter's attack action to take them out. And then everything else you can, you can score without having to hit the enemy, which is good because you've only got three move. So like sort of common surges, like calculated risk, bold conquest if you've got a three-wound leader. Um, swift capture is about as greedy as I've got with objective play, but like Mike said, most decks will do some sort of objective play now. Um, those cards are in there so that you can move forward and be scoring as you go and start getting people up. Uh, my, the surge that I really liked uh, was Frantic Exchange, and that's growing on me more and more and more the more I've played it. I think it's a cool surge that you kind of once it's been in your deck for a while, you understand a little bit more about when to go for this card and how to... It does change how you play your hand in a round um, because you kind of 
wait for the opponent to start trying to do things and then you do your things and then you get a glory out of it as well as everything you wanted but um any surge that you can score in the power step and that you can predominantly control yourself um is good in terms of end phase it was mostly so i guess the end phase is where i made the most recent changes to the deck um again looking at uh, duncan's uh control aggro flex frostcorn he had to the end and digging deep in there and given that i like card draw and i needed card draw because i needed to get my ping damage and i needed to get it reliably there was no reason why i couldn't slot this into my deck and not really have to change much and just have a better end phase score um so digging deep into the end went in and to the end was was great like uh, i it might as well have said score two glory in the third end phase like i never had to try um and sometimes i got it in the second so that was good digging deep i like less but um because i didn't like having to use activations to draw but it was still reasonably reliable Team effort's brilliant for Nurgle. Um, so yeah, the other cards I included were the kind of things that you would want in an aggro deck, um, along with some disruption. So I had the the ping damage that didn't rely on dice rolls. So Encroaching Shadow Collapse, Lethal Ward. Both distractions and Restless Prize uh, to mess about with objective decks, or I guess now just decks that care about objectives. Um Frenzy Search on Natural Truths to get my draw going. And then what else did I have? I had Steady Advance, which is legit. It's just a good card. Double sidestep for Nurgle. And Spectral Wings. And so Spectral Wings and Fameway Crystal were cards that I added in a little bit later. Because I I didn't want to have to have mobility. I wanted to be able to trudge gradually towards the opponent, uh, scoring glory, and then hit them in the face. But occasionally even with that strategy you needed a burst of speed whether that was to get to an objective that was quite far away in the enemy board whether it was to get to a priority target um or again they just helped with things like bold conquest swift capture so those went in and those cards did really um do me well the glory total was a bit low but total off tome of offerings and cryptic companion helped top my glory up um and like i said once you got inspired uh septimus and Golgotch could just run through pretty much any warband. Uh, Septimus, when he was fully kitted out, which happened, right? Because I got through my deck every game. So it wasn't some pipe dream to have a specific combination of upgrades on him. Um, but when I got him kitted out, he was like two range, four damage, re-rolls, sliding after every move, two glory a kill, five wounds, two block, reducing damage. Like, it was ridiculous. He was a win condition all on himself. So it was kind of move forward slowly, score reliable glory, send in the prolapse, and just smack the enemy with that. What's the plan? Send in the prolapse. Send in the prolapse. That's the quote of the year right there. The prolapse is king. Um, so I really like the the um, kind of the Voltroning of, of Septimus. I think it's a great it's a great win condition, as you said yourself. Um, what happens when he kind of goes down early? Do you, does that ever happen? Did that happen? It. Who took him out? So I had a matchup against Zach, who, as you mentioned, is another one of the Nurgle players, and he heavily prioritized Septimus, which is what you should do against Nurgle, um, which does hurt. And I think if you know you're playing against somebody that does that, he still doesn't just go down, right, even if you get to him early. He's still got four wounds, he's still got a shield block uh, defense, and still reduce damage, but you just... And I did this when I was practicing against uh, Mike as well, because he knew what he was doing. Septimus just went really far back. And that's fine. I have Fameway and Spectral Winks. I can bring him in when I need to. Um, Golgotch is a really... Golgotch is your sort of pre-Inspire hero. Um, 
three smash, two damage is a very reliable attack. He can start stacking up your inspire condition. He can tank some uh, damage, and you don't really care about putting sudden growth on him because losing mobility on him isn't as big a deal. So that was kind of how I played around that, is that if I thought there was early threat on Septimus, I'd deploy him a little bit safer and try and bait people with Golgotch. But if it does happen, it is bad. It is bad news. None of the others... None of the, other, none of the other fighters are as powerful Voltroned up because that two range makes such a difference. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the cool things looking at this deck and then looking at the other two um, that did well is just how many different directions you can take the worm spat. Like you kind of went for objective, a little bit of objective play and uh, the card draw, and then it looks like Zach um, went full aggro, mm. and then I think Sean. Uh, who I think goes by Mad Angry on the discords. I think he did more into objectives um, and had conquest, but didn't have the didn't have any of the uh, card draw stuff. So it's it's cool that um, I think people have figured out how to play this warband, and that it has seemingly like a pretty decent spectrum of like viability. Mm. So I like that. Um, I think that. Uh, it's a little unfortunate they don't have more faction cards that help them, but they have such a great stat line um, that I think they're able to take advantage of a lot of the current universals. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about those faction cards, right? I mean, are you are you taking very many? I I noticed well, I, that. So two? I'm taking at least three, four. Right. So, which is actually, when you think about it, not that unreasonable. It's just not like Grimwatch level. Um so I take Spread His Blessings, which isn't like my strongest objective in there by any means, but it's, it, you know, hold an objective in an end phase is fine. It's not unre unreasonable to do. Um, and that gets me one glory. I take Steady Advance, which is a great card. Like that, I think, is just straight up a great card. Choose two fighters, push each one hex. Brilliant. Um, and then the, I take two upgrades. And I think these are legitimately great upgrades as well. Unstoppable Tread is brilliant. Uh, push this fighter one hex after an activation. Uh, better than dualist speed, which would see in play because you can put someone on guard and shuffle them. And sometimes, just to annoy an objective player, if nobody was in range of Septimus, I would just put him on guard, push him onto an objective, and be like, cool, have fun with that. Um, and then equally, uh, Virulent Blade, which is essentially Awakened Weapon. Uh, it is restricted to Gulgok and Septimus because it's a blade, and uh, Fecula has a, has a smacky stick, so you can't make that Virulent. But, you know, an Awakened Weapon for the fighters you want to put it on. It's good as well. So those are my four faction-specific cards, and I think they're decent. I think it's just disappointing because none of them are cycles, and the cycles were a really cool mechanic I was looking forward to taking advantage on, and they they don't necessarily live up to the the standard that you need for gambits at the minute. Yeah, I agree. I think there's one that I like that gives everyone plus one move, but yes, you're probably right. It's it's too tight of a uh, a list right now. That went in for me, but I actually swapped it for spectral because. I often didn't need everybody. I often just needed one, and I needed them to go an extra hex. But that was go. just my... I think other people have had success with a natural vitality, and it is a great card. Right, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, let's get into event. So we don't necessarily need to do a game-by-game, game, though I would actually... I'd love to hear who you played against, what the glory was like, how many games it went to, and, um, you know, maybe a couple highlights. Obviously, you know, as we get towards the end of the event, particularly the playoffs, or rather the cut, top four cut, would love to hear more detailed recaps of those games, but uh, for the sake of time, how about we start with Mike? So, first game of the day, I was up against the meta. I have a Hrothgorn player. Um, 
and uh, even better, he won uh, the board uh, twice. I think I think the guy goes by uh, McCranky on Discord. Don't don't quote me on that, but I think he's McCranky. Um, I um, so the first game he he gave me tokens, um, and oh that was it. I remember now. So the first game he uh, no, I'm getting confused with the more game. So. The Hrothgorn game, it wasn't really a standout. It, it, he didn't realize, he he didn't appreciate the absolute diabolical danger threat that Morlog is early. I believe the very first game I played, I killed his Hrothgorn in Activation 3 of the first game. The second game, he understood the threat, um, but he he still couldn't hide from it. He still didn't have the tools, and I just killed him like early on in round two. So it took me a bit longer. Um, not there's not much to say. Like his his deck didn't have the tools to beat me, and he just wasn't he wasn't aware of how dangerous it was. Um, my second game of the day was against that Cursebreaker player, and that was a doozy. That was that was that was crazy. Um, so um, I uh, I won the, I won the first game fairly handily. Um, the second game um, we went long boards, and he did something that complete that seems so innocuous, but utterly changed the whole matchup. He placed an objective token one hex in front of Molog. And that meant I couldn't get an objective token about three hexes in front of Molog. And because there's so much difference between our fighters, so it's distance, I actually had Regal Vision in hand. If I wanted to use Regal Vision, I had to waste a move token on Molog to just move one hex forward. Um, and that, that actually completely wasted a whole round in the game. And he managed to uh, he managed to eke it out. It was a close glory game, but that, that one move, that one placement of the objective token was what won it for him. Uh, the third game was nuts. Uh, the third game, I managed to kill Stormsire and Rastus, but not Amis, which is the wrong order. Don't do it like that. <laughs> kill Amis first. Uh, she does three damage, and uh, high damage is a bit of a threat to Molog. Um, he actually ended up killing Molog that game, um, but he had to take... So he did. He made the exact right call. He had to kill Molog, because I had Prize Vendetta targeting Amis, and uh, if he just left me alive, I was going to kill Amis, and he was going to lose the game. I had Term of Offerings on. Um, he made a charge. He killed Molog. And he got an objective token. And we were tied at 10 all glory. Um, I cycled through my objective cards and got to singled out. I equipped three upgrades to Batsquig and won the game by one glory. That's that's kind of how tight that set was. Um, my next, my other two games in the day weren't too standout. Um, I played a Molog Mirror. And I was very surprised that he also ran Faded Form. I thought that that was... Uh, I was going to say my secret piece of tech. But I mean, let's be fair. It's a man's secret piece of tech that he told me about. Um... But apparently other people in the community have figured it out. The only thing that was a bit weird was so he actually was playing a super aggressive Molog deck, but he tried to fake me out in the first game. He tried to he, he molten shard pitted me, full offset them, and hid at the back and was like, come at me, bro. And I'm like, oh, I'm playing into a control deck. But I had Long Strider in my opening hand, so I was like, I can just kind of cagely come up and see what's happening. I don't have to go crazy aggro. And as I was slowly advancing, I outpassed him and then I came up and I killed him. It, 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 yeah, it, 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 he scored no glory. He got no upgrades on, and I, I, I managed to get inspired and did have upgrade. It was a very simple one. And then the second game, he blessed him. He made a, he made a really big mistake early on. He played commanding stride um, when he shouldn't have, and I said, "Hey, look, dude, it's cool. If you want to take it back, take it back. Nothing's happened." He's like, "No, this is a tournament. You don't have to let me take it back. I'm going to stick with my decision." So fair play to the guy. Um, he kept with it, but yeah, basically it meant. That. I just I just ran him over. He lost his mobility trick, and I just killed him quickly. Last game of the day was into Harrow's, and Harrow's is a beautiful matchup for my deck. So Harrow's have a bunch of end phase objectives that really don't like it if they can't be on objective tokens. 
Um, so I literally save all my distractions to knock them off objective tokens in the end phase. I save mischievous spirits for it, and I save restless prize for it. On top of that, Harrow's usually, I can't remember the name of this objective card, but there's one for um, if there are two surviving friendly fighters. And, there you go. And there are oh. two fighters that have two wound tokens on the game. You get two end phase glory. It's a normally super reliable card. Um, I'd, I, I'd learned, um, it's a similar trick to against Tom, deploying the squigs. Although they're in the back, they're not actually on edge hexes. Um, and he was running stuff like similar to Tom's deck, like Collapse and Encroaching Shadow. And it basically meant that he could never score Ghostly Torment. It was always a bricked objective because I one-shot his fighters and he either one-shots the squigs or he can put runes onto one fight, which is Molog. That's it. No other fighter ever gets wounded on them. Um, and without with that bricking and stuff like Uncontested, which he was running bricking, his his deck didn't work. I, I, I had a game where I only killed two of his fighters. He killed Molog and I, I outscored him on Glory comfortably. It, yeah, it was just a deck mismatch. So um, first day, honestly, good matchups. Um, I, I think I got a bit lucky with some of the players I played against, except for the Cursebreaker player, who I just got really lucky to beat him in general. Right. Quick question on that last mm-hmm. Ghostly Torment mm-hmm. counterplay. Are you saying that you did not put your squigs on the edge hexes and yes. you just put them up front? Yes, oh. I'd rather I'd rather have him charge Lady Harrow and potentially get a kill onto Spike Shroom then uh then actually um then actually like be able to get the the objective in the end phase in fact i specifically even once i only killed spike Shroom, didn't use the reaction to put damage on it so did nice. i wanted to put ghostly torment yeah very nice and, and i don't know if he had it but one of the things i kind of learned playing uh the harrows was to put lethal ward in there so that if you need to you can ping one of your own fighters um and that can actually be the difference sometimes in uh scoring that card or not so, just an aside there. Mm. Um, do you want me to go into the top four ones, or do you want me to save that till after Tom's done, like day one? Or let's do Tom day one. Okay. Um, but uh, very, very interesting tidbit there, Jonathan. Lots of pingception going on here. Um, <laughs> Tom, how'd your first day go? Um, so, I had a good answer to my question, which was how did I do into objective decks? Because I, I got, I, I won all four sets. And I played Grimwatch and Thorns um, across that day, and uh, those were my two O's. So the Gr- and and I think they got what they wanted. So both my Grimwatch games, I think they pretty much scored their deck. Like they, I didn't stop Temporary Victory or in the name of the King in either game. Um, in the second game, Activation One, the uh, Harriers charged all the way into my board and um scored gathered momentum they transfixing stared uh fecula so she couldn't score bold conquest and then they lead bone dusted sepsimus and gulgotch had already charged <laughs> so my activation one was just like oh cool i don't get to move and i and it still went well because my glory wasn't easy for anyone to stop either and i had time of offerings so we both went through our objectives decks um but none of my fighters died. Um, all I had to do was do everything I could to get into their territory, activation one, and then I just didn't get shuffled out. And you just gradually grind your way through. Um, the Thorns game was actually um, matched up even better for me uh, because they... I'm trying to work out exactly why it was so much better for me. Um, they... The, 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 so the Grimwatch have got the Duke and they've got um, they've got Gristlewell that can hit you early. 
the the Thorns sort of early doors don't want to be committing Varclav, so there's the Everhanged and the Briar Queen. Um, so I just kind of focused on not letting a Briar Queen inspire, um, and then just they don't resurrect, right? So I completely, as long as I wasn't, I just didn't engage the Briar Queen and just farmed through the chaff. Uh, and once all the chain rasps are gone, which didn't actually take that long, because you know you get a kill with Golgotch, which is pretty odds on. You maybe get fortunate and get one with Septimus as well, and then you ping someone off an edge hex. That's three gone. Um, so those matchups went really, really well for me. They were both two O's, and it didn't felt like I had to do much denying. Um, I think the only things I had to be aware of were cards like Uncontested and Coveted Spoils. So I spent a lot of the Thorns game trying to be on some objectives, but not all the objectives. And that seemed to be fine. Um, the second game I had against Zach was interesting because it was against Scaith, which I was like, cool, this will be fine. It's aggro, it's what I'm designed to take down. So I longboarded him and sat right at the back and was like, ha, bring it. But my deck also needs to fight, so that wasn't a good idea. Um, he, it, All it did was give him the opportunity to leverage his movement, um, and I was sort of at his mercy. I've done that kind of thing with... Um, rippers before and it's worked quite well but i think skates have so much more range um and threat that it, it didn't work like that and that game was actually i think it was a8 and it or 9-8 or something like that you won it on tiebreakers <laughs> zach had two scything attacks with skate that targeted my entire warband um which was a lot of fun we both enjoyed it he whiffed one of them completely and then nearly killed my entire warband with one of them um but then after that, I was like, right, longboard is still fine because you can't run past me. But I just need to deploy at the front of the longboard instead of at the back and sort of still have you come at me one at a time. So I did that for the next two games. And I he couldn't kill me on his initial charge and I could kill him on the counter charge. So I felt that that set was really useful for me to actually learn out why Nurgle's good into aggro, which I should have worked out by now. But it's not because you can sit at the back and laugh. It's because as long as you can channel and funnel the engagement, you just kind of act like this kind of, I don't know, disease-ridden meat grinder. You just sort of waddle forward and Golgotch just helicopters madly and goes forward and you kill everyone. Uh, the third game, which was the closest one, was against Harrow's. Um, I think the matchup is dependent. It's very board dependent. If I get the setup and I get to set the boards wide and I can hit Harrow's early, that's brilliant because um, you can deny a lot of their objectives just by killing them, and they're not too hard to kill early. Equally, if I draw something like an encroaching shadow and collapse early, they always put Kather at the back, and you just kind of go, whoop, whoop, bye. Brilliant, that's a quarter of your warband. Um, so there are a couple of cool things that I have, but equally, as much as Ghostly Torment was really hard for them to score against Mike, it's super easy against me because I want to be spreading damage around, so I score it for them. Um, so... It kind of, I think, if I got in early, it was fine. If um, if they managed to hold me off and sort of do what their little, little sort of passive controlly objective tricks and kit up, it was a problem. So I won the first game when we were wide, uh, and it was a, it was a blowout. Like I just didn't miss anything. Uh, everything went my way. Uh, and then the second game was pretty much a blowout the other way. Like I didn't get in, I missed my attacks, and he just rattled, rattled through his deck and killed me. Game three. Initially, I thought it was a tie. I thought it was 11-11, um, but I hadn't put my... <laughs> we counted the glory back up, and I hadn't added on my Tome of Offering kills, so it was 13-11 in the end. Um, but it was it was my tightest matchup, and it just... It really depended on the order of the cards we got. If I got mobility and ping damage early, it was great. 
Um, if I got some disruption early, uh, also great. But if I couldn't close the gap and he started to get glory on, the ghosts can actually become pretty hard hitting. So that was my day one. Um, it answered a couple of my questions about how I did into different archetypes. And I think it sort of proved to me that the warbands that can hang back are the problem. And it was good of me to have Fainway and Spectral Wings in there. And objective warbands I was more than happy to come into. Awesome. Yeah, it seems like a lot of your doubts were overcome and a lot of the challenges that you thought you would face uh, perhaps weren't as challenging as you may have initially thought, which is pretty exciting. Um, what was your favorite match of day one? Oh, it was definitely the um, it was definitely the Lady Harris one. It was the guy from I'm really good. I can't remember his name and I'm not a subscriber, so I can't go back on BCP and find it. But it was game three. It was against the guy from Australia. It was four in the morning and um, it was just it was that game three was so tense, right? Because like Mike said, we were both playing kind of off meta things and we went into this going, let's just play what we've been working on and we'll see how it goes. And I'd squared away two wins and I was like, cool, fine, that's enough. Um, and this was a super tight game. And I was like, all right, this might be where I fall. But that game three, I just felt like there was a lot of, there was a lot to that matchup, right? Because he has a lot of pushes and he's trying to disrupt my objective play. I've got a lot of pushes. I'm trying to disrupt his. I want to ping damage on, but I don't want to let him score ghostly torment. I'm trying to keep an eye on things like one will and nexus of terror. Um, he's trying to keep an eye on all these wound counters and a my scoring swift capture and my scoring spread his blessings. So it, it just felt like we were both really hard trying to deny each other. But I think what pushed me over the edge was at the end of the day, my fighters just were tougher. So as much as we denied each other, once those sort of lines finally did meet, I, I won that, that final fight. That's awesome. Yeah. I think, I think the Jonathan, did you do an article on the math behind how the Nurgle can kind of tank so much damage? Uh, yeah, I believe I included it in my initial review of the Warband. Um, and they, I mean, the chance of to reduce by one is pretty significant, especially once you um, have two defense dice. Mm. And a lot of the time, that's all you need. So, and there are a number of Warbands, I would say, in the meta right now that are actually fairly low damage. Um, so I think that it works. I mean, obviously it works pretty well. So it's super interesting. You get so focused on rolling the shields to reduce damage. Sometimes you have to be like, oh no, I just, I just actually blocked that. <laughs> that was just a normal step. You didn't hit me. And they're like, oh, that's, that's three. So it's two. And then my opponent's like, no, that's a shield. You just, it didn't hit. Oh, okay. It's kind of funny. How often did that come up? The, the damage um, reduction? A lot. A lot. Honestly, it does. Like I remember my initial article being like, oh, you'll be really frustrated about the crits not counting. And that happens when you're on one dice. Once you inspire and you get to two, I found you've got a 75% chance of reducing the damage by one. Um, uh, and as long as you don't rely on it, as long as you don't sit there and go, I survive if I reduce damage, I think you find it's really, really useful because it becomes this frustrating thing for your opponent rather than this thing that you're annoyed didn't kick in. Play like you're never going to reduce damage and it's the best thing in the world. That's a good mentality to have. Very much so. Okay, cool. Um, so, Mike, do you want to jump back over to uh, kind of talking about the um, the day two? I guess, Jonathan, if you'd like to quickly recap what the results were after day one, if you have that pulled up. Uh, yeah, I can do that. Um, the uh, I, I think it's I think it was a pretty interesting tournament. One of the things I think that was very notable was of the 64 players, um, 
all but three of the warbands were represented. So that's 21 different warbands. Um, the Iron Souls, Condemners, Godsworn Hunt, and Steelheart's Champions were not present. But um, all the other warbands had at least one player. Um, and most of them had more than that. I think it was only Despoilers, Reavers, Chosen Axes, and Eyes of the Nine, and Yoltari's Guardians had one. Um, we had six Cursebreakers, six Rothgorn. Um, those were the two most popular. Four Molog, four Profiteers, uh, four Lady Harrows, four Grimwatch, five Rippas, um, five Gits. So, I mean, a, a pretty good spread of what I think people consider to be viable right now. Um, and then as the rounds progressed, um, you know, even at the... Uh, after after the second round, we still had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven warbands undefeated, um, which is really really good, I think. Um, and then in the third round, that ended up being six. Um, so, and then that went down to three in the uh, fourth round. So, I would say really the um, I think I think we can say that we think. Rothgorn is the best um, in general. I don't think we're surprised that he made it as far as he did, but it really was just um, the one player that made it um, past the second round for Rothgorn. There was only one undefeated Rothgorn player after the second round um, out of the six. So it may have just been that tome build that's, you know, and then the, the skill behind it. Um, uh, I think that may be the true power there. Everything else seems to be pretty varied. Um, the top four ended up also including Harrow's. Um, I believe there was a draw, um, so the player that made it through there um, was the one with the draw, <clears throat> ended up in fourth place. Um, so as far as win rates and stuff go, um, there I think there were definitely a few clear winners. Um, even though I think in a lot of ways we consider them not to be as dominant, um, Thorns of the Briar Queen had a 68% win rate, which is almost as high as um, it's ever been. I think in January it was like uh, at the UK Grand Clash, I think it was 75%, something like that. So it's a little bit down. Um, I don't think, I, I still don't think that's, I don't think you can say they did poorly. Um, their average placing was 17th, which is pretty good. Um, the uh, I think we had a few cool surprise showings. Um, Duncan Bills was playing Yothari's Guardians, which um, I don't think anybody would have expected um, as an obvious choice, but um, he did very well. He made it to the third round uh, undefeated. He was the only Guardians player. He came in seventh at the event, so very impressive. Can we do we have a moment to to talk about his deck because it was super interesting. Uh, yeah. Because um, I was looking at this, and I, I have to play against Mike all the time, so I love all these crazy <laughs> builds. Um, and I was, and it, it, this obviously did really well, and it obviously had, there must have been plans for this. But I, there was how much scathe was there at this tournament? Because I don't feel I, I was surprised because when I looked at this, I thought, what happens if scathe ch charges Ilthari turn one with like any extra damage? <laughs> Yeah, like, um, the deck completely falls apart. Maybe I mean there there was no scathe at the previous one. I think I think there were zero, and then this time there were three. 
Um, and uh, they had a 50% win rate, so they did fairly well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I guess we'd have to ask um, Duncan exactly how it works. Looking at it, it seemed like it was um, – it had some spells, uh, six spells, seven spells. So that's a lot of spells. Um, and he just really couldn't lose Ilthari, I guess, yeah. Yeah, it was like I think that kind of fast aggro hasn't been prevalent in the meta for a while. And I think if nobody's going to be able to get to your backline and you can score glory passive, then this deck was just amazing. I was just like, yeah, this was the perfect time to do this. And it's such a cool deck. But I just suddenly thought, what I honestly thought was, ah, my god, someone would have loved this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> she, your Thari does become very hard to kill in this deck if you get the upgrades on. Yeah. Like, oh, so. Yeah. Ignoring the extra wounds from sudden growth, which is a thing, survival instincts, spectral armor, and the arrow's instant shield. Like, how do you even hit that? Yeah, and also, and does he have Eldritch Ward? Yeah, he does. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. You become unkillable, absolutely, and that, I think that was why it did so well because activation one or turn one, round one, whatever aggression at the minute doesn't feel like there are many warbands that can really come out the gate swinging instantly. Most people need time to power up at the minute. And I think th this was one of the reasons that my deck, I think, struggled into um, Hrothgorn, is that a lot of the time the defensive tools power up, if not in parallel, but actually they exceed the aggressive tools. Um, so those kind of late-game aggro threats actually still struggle against, you know... I mean, I'm even thinking about your Molog. If you, Molog comes into that like endgame Ilthari with like three on-guard dice that she's re-rolling, yeah. you kind of think they go... Okay. No. The only yeah. thing I can, the, the, the best thing I can hope for there is because um, that deck doesn't have many um, uh, like kind of pushes that I can use a distraction to trap her. And then I do think like if I've got potion for age and maybe prize from Detta, suddenly I think just being trapped rigs the odds enough in your favor there. But I, it's still like you still look at that and go, I'm not happy doing this. I just have to hope the dice work out. You know, that's always gone well for you in the past. Uh, it doesn't practice. <laughs> so I think that, that that's a really interesting point about uh, Scathe, and and so I think um one of the one of the points Tom you made is that there are very few warbands that can actually come out the gate swinging and and kind of get that three four damage attack off right. Yeah. Um, one of the challenges with that is like while you do have snare, which is awesome, mm. um, you don't have that redundancy in the deck because a lot of Scathe's wild hunt aren't taking pit trap, um. Uh, I I think it's probably one of the restricted cards you do take, but I can see why you don't because it's it's such a hard it's a hard fit, right? So, yeah. how often are you going to be you know charging and making sure that you are in range, you hit the attack, and then you have snare right to finish her off, right? There's a so, lot to count on, yeah. Exactly. So I think uh, I think you're right. This is probably one of the best times to play this deck. Um, I have I've been dabbling with guardians, and I think one of the be biggest benefits to this playstyle, this this warband, is leave nothing to chance. Um, mm. It makes scorched earth so reliable. Um, mm. It helps with getting um, the kind of passive glory you need to to buff your fighters up. And 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 we all know, right? Guardians, their two best fighters are Galagan and Elthari, and every single guardians deck ever, even when they were doing really well at the end of Power Unbound or at the beginning of Power Unbound, rather, was that you just rely on Ulthari to get the job done. Absolutely. And so I think Duncan really did go back to the basics here. And, yeah, I would if I you know I'm facing an aggro warband, I'd probably tee up Onslaught 
or Scathale, right? Just put them in the front and give them some yeah. juicier, more convenient targets. Because uh, once you get those those lost pages on... Um, oh, boy. Yeah. And, and I also think it's quite interesting that um, a lot of these... Um, these builds that rely on upgrades to kind of get you a big end phase scoring in the uh, at the end of the game have always been so prevalent. But especially now, right? I mean, you have the winning deck of the event playing Tomes, and then you have another top 10 deck with a warband that people have mostly written off at this point, who is now, you know, probably opened the eyes up to a lot of players on, on how it can do so well. Um, so I, yeah. I find that quite interesting. I know that you know, Steel City, other control experts. So I'll defer to your thoughts there. Uh, uh, Don't look Tom. at me. Mike's the dirty control player. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just I just find it quite interesting. I, I think from my perspective, the interesting thing about this deck is that in a lot of ways, it's very similar to the Hrothgorn Tome deck. Um, it uses the Scattered Tome instead, um, but those spell cards kind of allow... Um, you to have a little bit more flexibility, as particularly the Mazig's Many Legs and the Quintox Combative Cantrip, um, because those are just spells that you can cast into the air um, mm-hmm. and try to go for overpower, try to have a reaction. Because if you look at the uh, surges in this deck, all of them, except for Calculated Risk, um, can be scored in the power step. Um the reactions, I think, I think most likely for Lithe Spirits, he needs two reactions to go off. I bet a lot of the time that's Yulthari critting and then healing herself. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the time, every fighter in the warband has a reaction, so it's not that hard to do. Um, Song of Hatred is just going to happen as the spells happen. Scorched Earth is a combo, pretty easy. Overpower is going to happen when she crits. Rising Power, I think, does require a little bit of... Um, you know, it's it's kind of a combo as well, um, but it looks like he has what he needs to back it up. Um, and then the end phase stuff is just cast spells, score glory, be inspired, draw cards. Um, so, you know, all he he's he's basically doing a very similar thing that uh, the winner was doing with Rothgorn, where as long as he draws through his deck and gets all his upgrades on and doesn't die, um, he's going to have a quite a good um, quite a good glory base and so it's it's a very interesting I, th- I think it just shows what's what's powerful and and if you can spend your activations in drawing cards and uh you know casting spells and things like that and not put yourself at risk and still score a bunch of glory it seems like it's effective so uh my overall take on this deck um is it does really well into hold objective place the grimwatch thorns uh, that type of thing because you've got all the objective destruction you know, invert terrain, what do they do if that's one of the three objectives on their board? Um, you do really well into, um, I think you do really well into the mirror match, because I think this probably has more glory ceiling in it than even like uh, Tome Prothgorn. I think you probably win a straight-up mirror match against like, a, well, not a straight-up mirror match, but you know, into another control deck. Yeah. Your biggest problem and is probably into hard aggro, but that's a really sensible meta read because there isn't much hard aggro right now. Um, I actually think one of the reasons I did good with Moloch is because a lot of people aren't built to deal with just pure aggro that straight away is a dangerous threat to them. So I, I, I agree with Tom that Wild Hunt, maybe stuff like um, Magor's Fiends, I think they're all they're actually fairly decent right now because people don't have the tools to deal with them. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's the dice in the end phase. At the minute, the end phase isn't enough to support that as a consistent play style. So 
it just ends up playing spoiler to these kind of decks. Yeah. And I also think he really doubled down on just making sure Althari just stayed alive. I mean, even look at these spells. Terrifying Visage, minus one to uh, enemy fighters' attack dice to mm -hmm. a minimum of one when they're adjacent to her. So Eldritch Haze. pretty powerful there. And Eldritch Haze, yeah. It's another one. So uh, it's interesting to see some like rogue spell choices in here, but I think uh, it looks think really cool. I think it's also important to him that those a lot of those spells don't require a target. Um, they just needed a nearby objective. I think Pangs of the Great Lack and Withering are the only two that require somebody to be in range. And yes, Pangs and they have some of them. Hexes. Yeah, that was my, exactly my next point. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally across the board. Just slap somebody. I wonder, so I, I dabbled with a Curse Breaker version of this deck, and, and, I, and I'd like to get your quick take on it. Do you think the Guardian's version is better just because of survival instincts and spectral armor so yeah you lose if your spellcaster dies right and the curse breaker advantage is always when you have more spellcasters but realistically for this kind of deck you're going to need storm sire so it's a kind of storm sire versus ilthari and it's a question of ilthari i think i think it's fair to say ilthari scales better with the upgrades that she has available to her which storm sire doesn't um earlier on Ilthari's much more vulnerable to being like alpha struck. I, even Nurgle, if I got the right cards, you can fly in with spectral wings, you've got two range fighter, and then there's so much ping damage in there. It's not unreasonable that you can get three damage. Um, but later in the game, Stormsire kind of stays at two block and you get a Yara's instant shield on him, right? And that's his peak. But you, you, Ilthari ends up with three on guard dice and Yara's, and then these extra spells as well. Yeah, I, I don't think the Stormside version is bad, but I think given the, as we've said, the lack of hard aggro at the minute, you'd be silly not to take advantage of the fact that Ilthari can get better later. I actually, I, I'm going to slightly disagree with that because I think uh, Rastus Amos become your like lost page bearer because of the substance size and interaction with their ridiculous, like um, kind of always on guard when they're uh, in inspired ability. So you don't even need survival instincts with that. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, I think I'd have to play. I don't think I'm good enough to look at this and go one is objectively better than the other. I think I'd have to play and see. But they're both. I mean, you can run either of them that way. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the spell aspect of it might be a little bit more reliable. Um, I could see maybe Endgame Yothari being a little bit more annoying than uh, Endgame Cursebreaker. She is faster, which can matter sometimes. Five move inspired. Um, I would imagine with sudden growth. Yeah, but once you get sudden growth and uh, yeah, I mean once you get sudden growth and uh, Eldridge Ward and those kind of defensive upgrades, I'm not really sure you care about the one more health. But um, you absolutely just like fine, come at me. <laughs> Stop trying to hit me and hit me. And I don't know if having more fighters is an advantage or not, but it's it's interesting to think about. Um, I think it is. Yeah. It's more of like a distraction. Um, you, it, it's it's um, it's it's a it's a psychological thing, right? Like there are many targets, um, in despite the fact that they may be all objectively weaker than all of the curse breakers, just probably aside from Galligan. Um, it's the fact that like if I charge one fighter, I can get ganged up by multiple fighters type of situation, and if I commit something too early, there are more fighters or more options for my opponent to react with, and and so I think there is some sort of 
psychological factor there that you just the human mind just thinks more fighters means more threat right yeah yeah i agree i agree i think that's an interesting uh interesting concept and i think that's why curse breakers do have some game currently maybe they just didn't display it in this event um i think uh another player i wanted to mention um, that did well was uh thomas convoy was in fifth he uh, only slightly didn't make the cut on tiebreakers um, with the Sepulchral Guard, which I think is pretty impressive. Um, he was also running a Keys deck. Um, pretty standard, I would say, um, guard deck with Keys, which maybe just took people by surprise. Um, I don't think... I think I would have been a little afraid to play a Keys deck um, in the current meta due to uh, Hrothgorn and all that, but he did, uh, he had a great showing. He only drew with the person that ended up in fourth, um, playing Lady Harrows, I think. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And I think Mike's had more experience with Sepulchral Guard than I have, but, um, yeah, the glory ceiling of this deck is incredible. And if, if the opponent seeds the board to you, like some control decks do, then you can quickly establish a foothold there isn't as much aggro as we've said um and the sort of named fighters specifically the harvester and the champion and the, the warden themselves aren't pushovers um they can they can dish out some good damage um especially yeah. the, the champion becomes a very reliable hitter as well so into other objective decks i think those two can actually start tearing through um but unfortunately, he's scum. He's got daylight robbery in his deck, so we can't talk about this anymore. <laughs> he also has a rebound. Oh, oh that's sh- true. Oh, oh, Tommy, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing, man? Yeah, I, uh, oh. I will is... go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, sorry. That is um, one of the interesting things about the guard right now is they don't really need a lot of the restricted cards. I think scrum is probably even optional. Um, temporary victory is pretty obvious, I think. But after that, it's like they can kind of fit whatever. So I'm not, I'm not too surprised to see a rebound in there. And man, when it goes off, <laughs> oh no. Um, but I am surprised to see the tactical supremacies one and four, three and four, because I would be afraid Hrothgar would destroy objective four, and then that's two dead cards. He also has supremacy, which I think some people have in some ways written off with uh, all the distractions and everything. But uh, he was able to pull it out and you i guess you only need one key a lot in a lot of games for that to be a really meaningful amount of glory and he's got cryptic companion and um so it's it's, it's cool it's, it's cool to see the deck do it. well you include yeah. a load of objectives that are high scoring and then just bend the ones that aren't going to work rather than going i have a glory ceiling of 12 and i need to score everything yeah i uh I'm not surprised it was Lady Harrow's that he tied to. I want to say lost to, but he didn't lose. It was a tied game, a tied match, sorry. Um, because Lady Harrow's just packs so many distraction style effects. Like if you yep. want to, if you want to end your turn on an objective token, good luck. Um, so I'm actually amazed he managed to tie a game against Lady Harrow's. I, I almost see that as a hard counter to his deck. So he must have, he must have played his heart out there. Yeah, rebound yeah, probably and, went off. And, and no surprise, because I mean we know he's a one of the top players, so. Mm. Um, very cool to see him do well with a very difficult, <laughs> very difficult warband. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, 
let me go back to the main results real quick. I don't think there was too much more I wanted to mention. Um, I think uh, Ripa's did pretty well. Um, they had a 50% win rate. I think I think a lot of people have forgotten about them, but it may be due to the way they uh, did the FAQs for Ripa's. They were playing it where you could score um, loaded with plunder when the fighter is out of action. I think uh, rules is written. That's the the way to go. So that's what the uh, that's what they decided, um, and they did it okay. Um, then. Uh, Grimwatch overall had a pretty low win rate, 37%. So it seems like people may have figured them out, and I think they have an awful game at Hrothgorn. Um, so that's interesting. Harrow's had a good win rate, 64%. Um, if we combine the stats from both of these um, warbands and look at that, um, Thorns are at 70%, or combine the stats from both of the events, yeah. Um, Thorns are at 70%. Molly was at 66. Um, Lady Harrow's went down to 51. Um, Rothcorn are at about 53. The Worm Spatter still at 76. Um, Best one. Uh, Gitz, I think, did much better in the uh, second of the first event. No, I guess Gitz in general had pretty low. Win rates. They had 36 in the second one, and their overall across the two was about 40. So that's interesting because I think I personally consider Gitz to be um, very good, but uh, maybe over long events, um, maybe they have consistency issues. I'm not sure. I think that's probably the case. They just gave up too much glory, right? Always been a weakness for them, and yeah. And if those if those attacks don't hit, you lose. Um, yeah, so. that's true. That's true. You can't really can't rely on it. So I think consistency is probably the right word there. Though I think, um, um, I mean, shout out to Jimmy for, you know, making this Gitz deck so popular and and placing in yeah. the going three one and placing in the top fifteen. So um, yeah, I mean, honestly, what it may boil down to is uh, maybe Jimmy is scarier than the deck is, and when he plays it, it's it seems to me like it's one of the best decks in the game. Um, but. Uh, you know he's obviously a great player so yeah uh, i really think you just suffer from poor dice it's one of those decks where i think if you, you don't can. roll well you, you yeah. struggle uh i just want to briefly go back to the sepulchral guard deck with with uh with convoy sure. um if you look at this deck it reminds me a lot of his uh top four placing with the thorns of the briar queen uh mm-hmm. early on this year um where i think sandro won or mm-hmm. was it mike um, yeah, if that was the January Sandra. one, it was Sandra. Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, and so Tom Tom is uh, a big fan of 1434. And this, this deck is literally the same shell, but with a different warband. And so I think putting his experience behind this warband and, and the caliber of a player that Convoy is, uh, I almost would like to almost say it's like his favorite style of play from what we've seen of him. So, you know, I think that also goes a long way in seeing why that deck did so well and that warband plays top five. So, yeah, I, I think that that play style is um, very rewarding when you're able to make it work. Um, it doesn't rely on luck very much. It really just relies on positioning and like resource management. And I think that's probably why um, players that are very good at that, um, like uh, Convoy, like um, Dean Bills, for example, I think would probably like a lot of things about this deck. Um, I think you know, I think they're able to reach um, pretty high peaks of success with uh, this style because it really lets them 
um like it's it's a lot it's a lot more skill based i think than a lot of uh other alternate ways to play the game i like that he's got all three plus one damage that he could grab in there <laughs> just like we're completely objective focus but i if i hit you it's hurting <laughs> I enjoy that. Yeah. And the max glory, excluding kills in this deck, is like 20, 29. Wow. That's <laughs> nice. You know, if you get all the keys and all three cryptic triggers off, so cray cray. Okay. Well, <laughs> hey, let's, let's, let's move into the top four. Um, so top four in order were Hrothgorn, Molog, Wormspat, Harrows? Or was it? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So we have... Um, Mike and Tom in a very uh, interesting sandwich right there in the top four. What? You know, Mike, were you top after day one? Um, so, uh, man, I think you're talking about the results after, like, day four, uh, after day two, going into day two. It was yes, a different that... order. Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. What was the what was the order going into day two? Uh, I think uh, it was me, so Molog. Then it was Hrothgorn second. And it was Tom was still third, and Harris were fourth. Ah, okay. So Molog did reign supreme day one. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Okay, well, um, let's uh, let's talk about your first, I guess, semifinal, mm-hmm. and then we'll go into Tom's, and then uh, we'll talk about Tom's uh, second game, and then your last game. Cool. So, um, honestly, it, it, I played into another Lady Harrow's player, and it's a massive deck mismatch. Um, one 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 thing I didn't mention with the other the other Lady Harrow's player was because of how a lot of their objectives work, they are using... Lady Harrow's players will use their activations to do stuff like moving through two objective tokens or just moving their fighters onto the objective token so they can score stuff like one will, or they can set up for Nexus of Terror, or they can set up for Uncontested. If you um, get wide boards and you have Desperate Flight or Commanding Stride in hand, you just set up next to their fighters and you just keep attacking and keep attacking and keep attacking. Like my first active, uh, My first round, I think, of the first game, I made four attacks, and it was only the fourth one that killed a ghost. But yeah, you know, you expect even with two dodge, you know, two smashes, two dodges. Uh, sorry, two smash into two dodges. You still expect one of those attacks to connect. And then he was already to score a bunch of glory, and I just went, yeah, no. I played like mischievous spirits and some distractions. He's like, all right, good game. Um, and g- game two was um, oh, actually there was one thing. So when I was talking about my uh, my uh, day one games, I slightly misremembered. I was talking about like placing the squigs off the edge hexes. Um, that Lady Harris player wasn't running stuff like Encroaching Shadow and Collapse. It was this guy, this guy in the semi-final. And in game one, I had forgotten about that. So he actually uh, he actually did decently off that, but unfortunately he still lost the glory. And in game two, like he just couldn't do anything. Like it it, it was weird, right? Because I actually was getting a bit unlucky with the dice, but just there, there's no way he can outplay just how how those decks match it up. Um, he couldn't score almost anything. And I just got activation, activation to wail on him, whereas he'd need to hit multiple successful attacks in a row to even threaten me. Because every time he goes at me, he has to charge. He can't just make attack after attack. And only a couple of those fighters do enough damage that I care about. Um, And if he's doing that, he's just not scoring the objectives in his deck. Um, So, yeah, I think he played it as best as he could, but there was nothing he could do. And I got a a nice 2-0 out of it. Uh, that's like the epitome of the objective into aggro matchup when you're forced to fight it's like even if you've got good fighter stats the aggro deck's scoring off that fight and you're not yeah yeah i'm getting stuff like steady assault while you're you know maybe hitting an attack and doing two or three damage like yeah i think that's one of the strongest parts about aggro and why i probably like it so much is multiple 
uh, scoring off kills, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so strong start, perhaps victorious duel, um, and even tireless assault can get you like a five glory kill. And if you have tomes, maybe six, right? It's pretty, it's pretty dirty when it stacks up. So um, very nice, Mike. So uh, did very well in, in the first game, and then uh, Tom, you were in your, uh, you were playing Benny. Yeah. Oh dear. Oh, right? Dear. What a match. Um, honestly, some of the most fun underboards I've played. Like I think there's going to be it, a, a tome deck won the tournament, right? And I feel like that kind of gets flack occasionally. But honestly, I I loved these games. They were super tight. It came down to the wire every single time, and at no point did my heart rate drop below like 120. Um, so it was really good fun. Um, game one. Uh, I got longboarded, um, but I had Fainway. So I scored a bit of glory, and Fainway had Septimus into the back line. Uh, it's worth noting that every... I'll probably just say this to start off with. Every single game, the only fighter that did not die was Frothgorn. Everyone else died uh, on his side. And I think for at least two of those games, I think my entire warband survived. I think game three got a kill uh, on two... I think got two, actually, on in game three. Um but game one was my deck bricked a little bit more than I would like. Um, but the game essentially came down to uh, he, he's, he cleverly used Tome of Healing. So I got Septimus with a sort of three, four, five damage threat next to Frostgorn pretty early doors um, and, kept, and, and landed, I think, probably two or three attacks with Septimus. Um, but sort of Tome of Healing in between the attacks meant that he sat there on one health uh, in range of the inspired fecular attack, but not in range of the melee one, only in range of the ranged one. So the game came down to a two-channel into two-block attack, which I'm pretty sure is in his favor, not mine. Um, If I hit it, Hrothgorn dies and I win. If I miss it, he triggers his tomes and he wins. Um, and I did miss it, which isn't unreasonable. It was an odds-off attack, uh, and that game finished 17-14. Um, I think maybe Golgotch died in that one. So um, it was Septimus and Fecula left with Hrothgorn. Game two, but wide boards. Um, and that game, I got a lot of mileage out of Cryptic Companion and uh, Tome of Offerings. So his Tome scoring like five glory out of his upgrades, right? I think, or maybe six. I can't, how many did he have? Five or six. Um but you can easily get four or five glory out of cryptic and tome, so it's not actually as big of a, a deck mismatch in that sort of endgame push as you might think. So I kind of gave up on killing Hrothgorn. I was like, let's just score my deck and we'll just see what happens. And what happens is we both scored twenty glory, um, and that was with daylight robbery going off. Um, so I actually got. 21 um thank thanks should go to tommy the dirty rebound daylight robbery user for chiming in at the end of the game because i'd actually forgotten to add a glory on and i thought i'd lost uh, but he very is a, a very gentlemanly way uh, came in and um uh, let me know that i had scored an extra glory which took us to a game three which um I wasn't necessarily emotionally prepared for um i think we got off, so I got offset that last game, um, and that, that game ended 19-20, so Benny took it by one, um, 
I think there was one misplay that I could say I made, which was I used Encroaching Shadow onto Hrothgorn and kind of forgot that my game plan was to just just try and score and match his glory. And that meant that later on when I drew Collapse, I couldn't kill Quiv. Um, and if I had, then that would have got me unexpected for Pitfall and I could have drawn into Swift Capture and actually jumped back and scored that, which may have evened me up. Obviously, you can always say these kind of things, but then what Benny would have done in response, he may have denied Swift Capture. So, But I know from my point of view that that's something that I would have done differently going back. But other than that, I don't think I would have changed anything uh, that I would have done or really anything about my deck. I think those two decks match up incredibly closely together. I think if I get Time of Offerings in Cryptic early doors, which isn't unreasonable given the amount of draw in my deck, then I can do really well, plow through the Noblars and win. If I don't get those cards um, or I uh, stumble on my objectives, Benny wins. It's easy to say that Benny's always reaching the ceiling, but actually his deck has a lot of brickability as well. He had a lot of snowball cards in that deck, cards like a singled out combination strike, great gains, uh, uh, the great hunt. I think he had solid gains in there as well. And any combination of those turn one can ruin you because you can't score any of them. Um, and I don't think that happened that game. Um, so there were there were um, different ways that that matchup goes either way. And I think in the end it was it was super tight. Then he played it absolutely brilliantly. And uh, I I did make that that misplay in game three. Game three, I also forgot to equip Cryptic Companion, so didn't get a glory for it. And then round two, Benny forgot to push me up the objective, so I did score it. So that kind of balanced out. We were both clearly quite tired. Uh, but yeah, it was a good set. Some of the best uh, Underworlds I've played in a, in a long time. That's always the best feeling, is you know playing a really, really good game and walking away with it happy weather, no matter how you know the glory yeah. ended up. I think we could have played 20 versions of that game, and it probably would have come close to 50-50. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they were all, all tied, like all within one to two glory. With the, the game one was actually three glory difference, but like I said, like if that had hit, it was the game one was very much a dice roll. Um, but yeah, so 17-14, he won the first one. 20-20, I won on tiebreak as the second one. And then 20-19, he won the third. Oof. Well, I think that's still a very, very well played and a very uh, great showing, Tom. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, it still hurt. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure but i think uh i'm really glad you didn't flip-flop the last second uh, and play reavers or something you know who would do that I, I couldn't trick him into it this time last time i <laughs> I, I played against his reavers and uh he he beat me so, so i was like well i best take these do you know what that tournament the one matchup i won was against harrow's which was what you were playing when i won <laughs> yeah. every other matchup i lost yeah That's i wasn't funny. playing in this one so i let you take something good you know Thank you. You were, you were a true gent. Random question. What would you have played if you had played, Jonathan? Um, I don't know. Maybe just Skaven again. <laughs> I've just been having fun with them. I mean, if anything, this episode goes to show that play what you like and you'll do well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Um, speaking of uh, doing doing well... Is Mike, you there? You ready? Yeah, yeah I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. I'm ready. Okay, cool. Um, what what was your thought process going into the final? Now that you know you made it um, and you knew you were going to play against the other big boy in the meta, uh, what was your what were your just give us give us a frame of mind of of where your frame of mind was exactly at that moment? So my first and most uh, important thought was that Tom had ruined it. Um, 
there was there was a very good chance that we were going to get a Steel City final for the first time, and uh, it, it it was off. So uh, better better next time, Tom. Come on. Um, Your but... is, <laughs> it means the world to me. Yeah. Um, it, it it was really odd. So I, like I said, I played a practice game against Benny. He was I, I literally I just played a single practice game against him to warm up a bit for the tournament on day one, and I had killed Hrothgorn in activation three, and it felt great um but the problem is that because i won it so easily and without kind of doing much all i did was i think i actually gave him like i gave him the knowledge of just the threat that Moloch was a lot of i, I like i said before i think a lot of the reason i did so well on uh, day one a little bit maybe on day two is people underestimate just how inherently powerful his fighter stats are and just how much he kind of he makes he makes aggro a threat in round one where a lot of aggro, except for maybe scathes with mobility, in round one doesn't quite do much. Um, so he was ready. He was ready for me. Whereas I, I just knew my general stuff about Hrothgorn, right? I, uh, I had a suspicion he was going to be playing terms. I know that in the January Grand Clash, where he just uh, was didn't quite make top 16, he was playing curse breakers with terms. So I expected that to be his playstyle. Um, so yeah, going into it, I was I, I was a bit nervous, but I was I was kind of feeling it. Like, I, I felt like I, I I could do good. I'd beaten I'd beaten a Rothgorn player on day one really handily, and I'd beaten Benny in our practice game. I was like I I can do this. Um, so yeah, I was I was feeling good. Um, going in, sorry. No, no, yeah, go ahead. What what happened in the game? Oh, so first game, he he molten shard pit offsets full offsets me. Um, and I mean that's exactly the right thing to do if you win boards uh, against an ag- any aggro warband if you're playing control. It is it is such a a powerful setup for control that I actually think it's almost carrying like some control decks through at the moment. Um, I, I you know for instance like this Yothari deck and stuff. I'm not sure they do quite as well in a meta where you don't have Molten Sharpet. Um, I know from playing Molog, I am, and I, Molog gets to move and charge, right? So he doesn't have the issue that a lot of aggro faces of, well, I just don't, literally don't get to kill a single fighter round one. I get to kill a fighter. My massive disadvantage, though, is with how those lethal hex are, places, uh, are placed and the fact that they usually put a lethal hex on the other side when they're placing them to make this like tunnel. I effectively have five wounds. Molog with five wounds is not as scary as Molog with seven wounds. Um I, I basically, once I saw him do that setup, I had three different ways I win the game. Um, if I get early passive glory with uh, Term of Glories and Cryptic Companion and an Inspire, there's a chance I can just outpassive him because I know that his deck has brickability. Uh, but that is a very, very rare combination of cards to get all in your starting hand. That's like a, that's like a one in a hundred type god hand. Uh, another method is I just get any passive glory with Fading Form. Uh, fading Form like completely negates the lethal hex part of the mortar shard deployment i still have to deal with offset but suddenly i'm not five wounds i'm seven wounds so that's fantastic um and then the third way i win it is i play normally and my dice are incredibly lucky i'm talking like less than 10 percent chance lucky like every single attack he he makes he misses that that, that level of stuff it can happen um opening hand came out i didn't have any of the combination of stuff for fading form or for the passive game plan um, I steadily advanced into his territory. I think I think I oh it was even worse. Um, so not only did he get boards, but he actually took uh, the role to decide who goes first off me. Um, obviously, because I, I deploy as a three fighter warband, I get a free critical uh, in that role, um, which usually means you win about I think it's about eighty percent of the time, something like that. 
uh, but he took it off me and that's actually really big because it means in my fourth activation i'm usually making a charge and then he gets to make a free counter charge with no kind of repercussions whereas otherwise i'd be going in in the fourth activation with my charge and he wouldn't get that response um so i think my fourth activation i charged and i killed like a trapped lugget and thwack um and in his fourth he charged thrafnir and thrafnir hit um which is reasonable it's three fury into two uh, sorry into one block that's you'd expect it to hit um and it's only two damage wrong no push me into a lethal hex so Mollog's... mike you also had that desperate gambit where instead of going forward at all you just went more into the lethals oh yeah i forgot desperate about flight, that sorry oh yeah D- desperate flight is such a it's such a weird card I mean, in the it's deck nice it's yeah exactly it's, it's a dice card you rig the dice because it's like snark you uh you roll four but you only scatter three um but yeah no there are times when it goes wrong um to be honest like if i was in a normal situation i just wouldn't use desperate fight next to those lethal hexes because the fail state is so bad however i needed a free move um so yeah basically the dice went against me i think i think um i will say though benny actually um played his hand very very well I don't think he scored a single objective in in round one, not just in, in within the action phase, but also in the end phase. And yet he held on to every single card. And as soon as uh, round two started, he just started churning through his deck. Like he he had a very intimate knowledge of exactly how his deck worked, and he knew that he could keep those cards and that he could still snowball off it. And he did. Like in round two, it was crazy. He like basically he got a glory uh, off scorched earth. Uh, because he'd finally drew into a trigger for obviously he'd had scorched earth in hand at the beginning but he didn't have a way to to like make it happen and then once he got that he got he got some other effects and it just it just snowballed he got something like four glory just in the activation and then inevitably what happened was he he charged and killed moloch who didn't have enough wounds to deal with him now um yeah it's it's it, it, in a way it's mildly anticlimactic because i don't think there's much else i can do in that situation except get lucky like if i'd have won that game would have been mildly anticlimactic because i'd have won because i crit defended everything you know um so game two uh i'm extremely happy because i win the board roll off and i think in in, in this matchup monologue into hrothgorn especially control hrothgorn the game is so dependent on who gets boards i think it's almost like a it's like you're 90 percent favored either way that's how nuts it is um i won boards and i was like oh i'm gonna win this one um <laughs> didn't happen <laughs> um i it, it kind of came down to a couple of very minor misplays on my part actually one one, I, one was a very minor one one was a medium misplay um and being quite unlucky on the dice so um i managed to get a prize vendetta targeting hrothgorn and enough glory uh this was yeah around towards the end of round two um, and I started making some swings at him and he made a gathered momentum charge. I think it was to kill Stalag Squig, um, uh, which also inspired him. Um, I don't know if he had an accuracy buff that or if he was inspired before. I think it was just a straight two smash into two block that he made. Um, that, so that inspired him, which is a, a pain for me because he goes up to two block. Um, and it scored him gather momentum, which he needed because he needed to get the glory train going at the time. And then I just missed three attacks in a row. It was something like three attacks in a row that he crit defend, uh, crit and shield defended because he uh, like two of them. If he'd have just crit, I'd have still hit him. Um, I I managed to push him into his own trap, which felt quite satisfying. It was a trap and a lethal hex. Um, remembered he 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 very you know remembered that tough and hide even reduces damage from his own trap, which is just frustrating. <laughs> um, but even out of all of that, I. I should have probably won my, my so my big misplay, my medium kind of level thing, 
um, I should have cycled Mischievous Spirits at the end of round two. Uh, Mischievous Spirits and Restless Prize are cards that are utterly amazing into like Grimwatch Thorns and Lady Harrows. But against a Frothgorn who only cares about tokens to destroy them, they're not that good. And I just come off a set where these cards have been like my super prioritized. This is what completely denies my opponent. And I'd overvalued it. I hadn't like reassessed for the state. If I'd have cycled Mischievous Spirits at the end of round two, I would have drawn into Great Strength. And Great Strength got me enough damage that I'd have killed him in a single attack. Um, and I had Haymaker and Potion of Rage and Prize Vendetta. And I think that six dice where you can reroll all of them is enough that you say that probably hits. Um, Don't do it. You'll miss it. You will. <laughs> but Never say that. Because I didn't have Great Strength and I didn't hit my attacks at the end of round two. Um, I needed to hit two attacks, and admittedly, I had Haymaker and Potion of Rage, and I had Prize Vendetta, so there were going to be like four dice with rerolls, but one of them failed, and I was like, as soon as one of them <laughs> failed, I'd use my charge token, and I knew that I couldn't make another one. I can't remember exactly how it was positioned. Basically, I couldn't make another one and get him, and it was done. I couldn't kill his turn bear, and he beat me out in glory. I think it was really tight on glory. Um, my yeah. very minor misplay, which Jonathan noticed at the end when he was breaking down the game, was that I should have killed, I think it was Lugget and Thwack, because then he wouldn't have been able to score calculated risk. Um, I don't really, I don't really um, blame myself too much for that one, though. Like, um, like, I mean, Tom was mentioning it earlier, but you, you get very mentally fatigued when you get deep into a tournament. And keeping, like, that hyper-aware is the type of thing that, yes, a perfect player should be doing. But I, I think that's already that's a bit too above what I, where I expect to be at, at that point in the day. So I'm not I'm not I'm not frustrated I missed that. I am frustrated I didn't cycle mischievous spirits though. That was a legit minor misplay on my part, and I think you could actually say it cost me getting into a game three. Who would have won game three is, is a massive question because um, it would have very much depended on board rolls. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Do you think? Um, I guess one of the big advantages for that third game, even if he had won the roll would have been that he couldn't have used the molten shard pit yes um so i i, I so i i think if i get bored i am like i think i'm i think i genuinely am 90 percent favored i know it's going to sound crazy because i lost that game but i genuinely think overall i'm 90 percent favored um if he gets molten shard pit i think he's like 95 percent favored or something crazy but if he gets an offset without molten shard pit it goes a lot down it's probably like it's probably like 70 percent. i think i've got a chance like i have a game there He's just he's just got the big edge, you know. Yeah, and I guess um, I guess the Penitent Throne isn't really actually that much m more enjoyable for you. <laughs> Is that he can the one put with another... the three block texts? Um, that's the one with two block texts together, mm -hmm. um, and then the two uh, uh, lethals kind of on the. Worth... So I did this to Mike in uh, practice and it's another one of those where if he draws fading form those block texts also mean nothing yeah 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 that, i think that's i think that's one reason that's a good pick i remember i was um i wasn't able to play in the event but i was available for some of the day so i was kind of snooping on the different games and uh i noticed i went into one game i think it was worm spat versus uh rothgorn and rothgorn had long boarded with the molten shard pit put a lethal hex mm. next to the you know like in that spot um, next to the other ones. Um, so there's one space in between the lethal and the other lethal that he can place. And then he put the trap right in the middle. And yeah. there was basically absolutely nothing that that fighter could do. <laughs> like the other team. That the other was why I was so happy to have not... Fainway. Like, yeah. Without Fainway, it's, yeah. it's done there and then. But because I had that, I kind of just jumped straight over that and started 
you're trapped <laughs> in here with me. Yeah, yeah. I think I think one of the I just think Molten Trout Pit is so so powerful right now. Like its existence um, means so much to the diagonal and the longboard um, part of the game right now. It's pretty interesting how that affects certain matchups. But you know, I guess there are tools like Fading Form if uh, you're afraid of that. I think that's pretty cool. Um, I I was watching the the final game as well, and I, I it was pretty incredible to be like, wow, Mike could win the game if he rolls if he makes this roll, and then you failed it, and then it's like, well, he could win if he rolls this one, and then crit defense again, and then well, one more, <laughs> and then crit defense again. It's like, wow, no, wow. Uh, <laughs> I was watching, and uh, my girlfriend was watching next to me. She's like, oh, how's, how's Mike doing? Um, I was like, oh, it's fine. He's got this one. He just, need, he just needs to hit Hearthcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I should never have said that. It's absolutely my bad. <laughs> I apologize. I think it's still cool that, you know, the. it sounds like the, the, the reoccurring theme here is that the games were just so tight, and it yeah. could have really gone any way. And well, I think absolutely. that's the best. That's the best part. Underworlds is if you two are playing, and it's so tight that it just comes down to one dice roll, then you both had a hell of a game. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to take anything away. Like Benny absolutely smashed it. His deck was incredible. He did not make misplays. And it's easy for us to go, well, this dice roll was, you know, we don't know what was in his hand, and he had to engineer his way around some very difficult hands, which is how the skill expression in that deck comes out. It's not as obvious as, oh, did you roll a crit? It's very much controlling your hand in a in a good way which is anyone who's played that kind of deck although it's, it's a skill in of itself and you can easily brick if you're not good at it so he absolutely smashed it and um built an incredible deck and played it incredibly well and uh i, I loved our game like i if all my games could be like that i would choose to have them like that because it was brilliant so we actually have uh, an interview with benny that uh, i was able to get for the episode so we're going to slowly transition to that and then we'll jump back and end the segment with listener questions. Hey everyone, this is Amon, and I'm interviewing Benny Monahan for his recent performance this previous weekend on the online clash for getting first with Hrothgorn's Man Trappers. Benny, how's it going? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, thanks for jumping on here. So uh, you had a pretty good weekend, huh? Yeah, it was uh, very eventful, some very tight games, and uh, yeah, it went well for me. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. So you took Hrothgorn's Man Trappers. What was the the reason behind it? Well, I just I like the mechanics of how he works originally when he came out. Um, I played a lot of Curse Breakers before with uh, Tomes build, and um, I feel like he ended up working a lot better with that. So it kind of brought over my experience of playing that controlled kind of archetype over um, to playing it with Hrothgorn. He does it probably even better with, than the Curse Breakers did. I guess you you have a lot of history with Tome, and for those of you who aren't aware, Benny's uh, Hrothgorn deck revolved around stacking Tomes on Hrothgorn. So even so, it looks like you really like this Tome playstyle. You've been playing it for a while. Yeah, it has a bit of a bad reputation, but uh, I, I enjoy it a lot. Um, and the more people talk about it being a kind of bad place, it kind of makes me enjoy it more. Maybe I'm a bad person, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's it's different strokes for different folks, right? So you really yeah. like the the tone play style, um, and it is really risky, right? There's I bet there's a little bit of adrenaline with it as well because you know you're putting all of your eggs in one basket in yeah, theory, right? Yeah, there's always that risk. Like where I did have a couple of times in the tournament and. One of the rides in the final, actually, uh, 
where I had like four tomes in my opening hand, as well as Acolyte as my objectives. And in that mm. situation, you can't really throw it away and you kind of have to go with what you've got and hope to draw into some other cards that can get you going. Because if you throw that all away, you're kind of, you're probably going to lose the game. So definitely a, a risk involved with it for a big payout at the end. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll get into more of the games in a moment. But I guess my my question for you is, you know, you mentioned already right there that sometimes drawing is kind of tough when it comes to, um, you know, combo pieces that provide a big payoff at the end of the game. So when you're building your deck, especially like a tome build with Hrothgorn, what are some of the things that you're including in the deck? And, and like, why did you include those cards? Well, things, well, firstly, he has his own... Um thing for drawing two power cards is upgrade veteran hunter and when you put that along with uh, things like unnatural truce and frenzied search it mitigates the risk a bit as you can get more cards out very quickly and then when he has other cards that um, surges such as frantic exchange and unexpected cunning and things that are just to do with power cards um, it kind of plays into it well as well as having the objective destruction um, which you need the cards for as well. Um, so kind of all, and Digging Deep is another one that works well into that. So you kind of build around that. So you build a deck around being rewarded for drawing a bunch of cards, and, and I guess it works because you need to draw into your tomes and then upgrade yourself so that you can get that big payoff. Yeah, pretty much. And as well as being very difficult to kill with his massive bulk, Tough and Tide, etc., he also has uh, some very easy surges, which are easy to score, which allows you to get easy glory and uh, get those tomes on. Sounds kind of like the perfect recipe here. So, what yeah. did your or before we get into specific games, I guess what's your strategy? And and then you know talking about that strategy, how did you implement it in the first four games before the cut? Well, it kind of depends on the matchup. If you're playing more into hordes or objective playstyle, you kind of do you have to be a bit more aggressive. Um, because they could outscore you with um, just standing on objectives and stuff. Um, but if you're playing against aggro, such as Molog or any of the other sort of big hitters like Skaths or Rippers, you kind of want to get as defensive as you can, sit back, maybe offset or longboard, depending on who it is, and uh, try not to let them get hits on Hrothgorn early, especially before he gets tough and tied on, um, so you're not at risk of losing your Tome Bear too, too early. But if you are playing into hordes, you do have to try and disrupt their passive scoring. Um, because if you get a bad draw or a bad hand and they start scoring their temporary victories and things like this, uh, they can get a bit of a lead on you. So you, you can also get some easy kills as Hrothgorn can also, uh, he's with his range attack and his very accurate attacks, he can get some kills on as well with Tome of Offerings. So it's good to be a bit more aggressive in those type of matchups. Yeah, did you yeah. run um, a Tome of Offering as well as Trophy Belt to get some of those multiple glory kills? I had Tome of Offerings, but I didn't run Trophy Belt. The different iterations did have that, but then I ended up uh, changing it for things that made them a bit more survivable, um, mm -hmm. which it could easily have gone in there, though. Um, it's just I find in some matchups I was trying my best to not get Hrothkorn involved in the action as it was a lot of all my surges basically can be scored uh, without having to compromise Hrothkorn so if I can not have to do that then I won't but uh, 
it does help if you can get an early tome of offerings against maybe some gits or thorns and get some easy kills, get the glory up. Mm-hmm. And what what do you think are some of the weaknesses or, or perhaps weak matchups for your current build? Well, I did, Molog was the one I was uh, very scared of going into the, as well as other heavy hitters like Sketh's Wild Hunt and things that can just get stuck in early and hit very hard. I had some practice games where a Sketh's player was able to get me like seven damage in one <laughs> one hit just with the right cards and right upgrades on. Wow. And with Molog's double charge, if he gets an early Blazing Solar Regal Vision and he can hit you twice for four damage, it's... It's not very nice either. So they were the kind of ones I was worried going in. I was happy playing in the hordes and uh, things that uh, like to stand objectives just because I've got so much objective disruption in there, as well as it being uh, usually they can't hit as hard. So um, they can get less big hits on them or off gun. Right. Okay. So how did your first couple games go? Well, first I had uh, Gitz. I was playing against a guy I know, Paul McLaughlin. He's Scottish. Um, I'd actually practiced with him uh, just before that. Um, so I knew that he wasn't running the kind of Amberbone Gitz or the aggro Gitz that I would have had to be more wary of and sit back. I knew he was running a very objective heavy with keys. So I was able to set it up more aggressively. He won the roll-off for both and took objectives. So I set up more aggressively to try and get in there and get some easy kills. Um, my dice actually didn't go for me in those games, uh, but I was able to pull off uh, wins by just two and one glory, um, just from getting the surges out and getting a couple of Tome of Offering kills. It was actually um, in the end phase, he actually scored like uh, three keys and nearly caught up with me uh, on the game two, and I only actually won that by one glory. So wow. those were actually both very tight games, with both having very high end game scores. And then uh, the next one was Brandon Hussman. He was playing a Molog. And I was actually uh, very scared going into Molog. I just had a practice game just before that with Mike Carlin. And he had uh, basically killed me in the first round <laughs> with uh, with his Molog getting inspired and just doing what I said before. So, But I think that game actually gave me... Uh, it was good for practice because it gave me a better way of dealing with that whenever I lost the board roll-off. So I actually won those games by 8 and 10 um, because I was able to avoid my log, really, and get my surges. I had some good draw in those games, so uh, quite comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And then when I had game three, it was actually against a Forest Riders player called uh, Isaac Cajo. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't actually played a game against Forest Riders with this deck, but... I was able to win board roll-off twice and offset him and give him a really hard time. Um, I was also able to... He kept trying to get Farstrider into my territory and I was able to kill him, his Farstrider, with a trap and with a thraft near charge in both games. And that kind of um, killed him off a bit. Um, so in those games, I won by nine and by eight. So it uh, went uh, three two-and-0s in the first three rounds. Um, my fourth round I came up against Duncan Bills and I hadn't actually played him before but I just heard a lot about him so I was very worried because uh, I know he's a very good player and he was playing Altharis which I had no idea what way he was going to go with it um, in game one uh, he had a really bad draw in his first hand I think he had six glory he had to throw away he had like combination strike, magical storm and great gains I think it was or something 
Mm-hmm. I was able to set up passively and he was playing our lost pages. So he set up passively as well. And we both just scored passively, but because he had um, thrown away so much, I won by two. And I think that took me off guard and made me think I could outpass of him. So in game two, when I won boards, I set up passively again, but realized he actually could score probably more than me with the way he was running his deck mm-hmm. and his lost pages. So he was able to win game two. Uh, but luckily in game three, I kind of adjusted and realized I had to be more aggressive or he would probably outscore me. And I was able to get a couple of Tome of Offering kills and win game three. But all three games were really tight. And it was actually 50-50 on glory total um, for the three games, which kind of summed up how the games went. And that put me uh, 4-0 and through to the day two. And you were number two going in or number three or... Yeah, it was number two. I'd lost one game. Well, I think Mike Carlin also only lost one game, and he was a he was at number one. Right. And so this match with Duncan, which I think is so fascinating, is very similar play styles. And yeah. so it just came down to uh, you having to kill some of his fighters. Yeah. Was he getting think, close to killing Hrothgorn at all, or? No, he wasn't even trying to, because I think he knew he didn't have that in his deck. Um, I think he actually could outscore me passively, which there's not many decks. I feel that's why I built my deck, so it could be um, score as much passive glory as possible if people sit off. But I was able to adjust in game three and thankfully get a couple of Tome of Offering kills, and they only won the game by two, so that was kind of crucial uh, that that happened in the end. But he's, he's a brilliant, very intelligent player, and uh, the way he plays is it's great. I learned a lot from playing him. Yeah. He's a, he's a great player. I, I meet him yeah. a lot uh, in the American events, uh, very near top table, if not after the cut. So, you know, always nice to, to hear that he's doing well. So let's talk about day two, or I guess the sec- after the cut. So yeah. your first game is against Tom Bond and yeah. his Wormspat. How did that go? Yeah, they, that was maybe the closest best of three I've ever had. Um, it was uh, came down to a couple of rolls in all the games. Uh, I think in game one, he, I hadn't made a defensive role yet in terms of I hadn't made a save yet um, right up until the last activation of the game and he had Frothgorn down to eight wounds and he had a shot at him with Fecula and thankfully I made my first save in that and <laughs> was able to just eke out the win on Tomes by three in game one and then in game two uh, it was he had won boards and I had won boards the first one was able to longboard him and this one he had won boards and he was able to kill on the Noblars with Tome of Offerings and he was getting a score up very quick. I did catch up quite a lot with the Tomes and when we did the first count, it looked like I had one by one. Then uh, one of my friends pointed out that we'd probably done the scoring wrong, so we had to, I'd have thought I'd already won. But when we did the scoring again, we realised it was tied on glory and he was on more objectives, so I went from being relieved that I got through to realising, oh, here, we're the game three. Uh, and then in game three, that was well, probably the tightest game I've had. It's, I won it by 20 to 19. Um, I think a, a late Tome of Glories activation and able to wrest his prize him away from objective to not score his cryptic companion, I think uh, won the game in the end. But all three of them were could have went either way. They were just really, really close games. Very, very stressful. <laughs> It, it, you sound stressed just talking about it. Yeah, yeah it really was. 
No, Tom is a great player, and and, and yeah, we, really we hear his recount of this of this episode or, or this battle on this episode uh, earlier as well. So he yeah. he uh, he definitely spoke very highly of the game. Probably said it was his one of his top favorite games he's ever played, and it sounds yeah. like it was a nail biter. So yeah, I agree. It was it was probably the best best of three I've, I've ever played in terms of just how tense it was and everything mattered so much. Every roll and every move, just I mean, yeah, he's a really good guy. It was it was really good to play with him. What do you think made the game so close was he just able to mow you down with sepsimus or at least your noblars or, or what was yeah. the what was the thing that gave him the most glory yeah his getting tome of offerings on and uh getting the noblars and killing thrafnir and the noblars was able to as the worm spot kind of people think that they can't get the glory up but if they can get tome of offerings on and the way he's built his deck was very good as well he had some high end game score as well with to the end and digging deep and things like this. So he was basically, we were both basically scoring our whole decks in, in all the games, I think. That was just coming down to one kill here, one one thing there. Uh, and he had, also had some extra glory. I, he had Cryptic Companion, I had Tom of Glories, and those kind of were very vital as well when it came down to it. It was a very tight set of games, and I guess yeah. it could have gone either way, but um, it seems like you were able to pull it off uh Let's talk about the final then. So you and Michael Carlin, you mentioned earlier in the episode that you were concerned about Malog and how he had beaten you before the event. Um, Now, you mentioned that game really helped you adjust your game plan to Malog. Were you able to execute the lessons you learned from that match? Yeah, definitely. It was um, in the first game. Firstly, I was going in and was playing him. I'd been watching how he was doing all all day and <laughs> I was thinking was it gonna face him so I was I was like oh here we go um but uh, I was able to win boards in the first one I was able to offset him with molten shard pit which I knew would would make it difficult for him having to get Malog through all those lethal hexes and uh that was kind of how that game went as I was able to distract him and do a couple of lethals uh, get an attack in on him with Rafnir and even though on my deck that was the game where my deck bricked a good bit as I had all my tomes and my open hands and I was drawing lots of cards and still pulling more upgrades because I was able to get Molog down to just being able to be one shot by Hrothgorn. I was able to one shot as Molog with Hrothgorn in uh, the second round and then when that happened I was able to kind of run away with it and win that by eight in the end as the way his deck was built um, kind of needs Molog to be alive at least till third round. Um so it kind of went well. It was lo- I got an attack in with Thrafnir in the second round, or the end of the first round, which was crucial, as I was able to get, he was already on one damage. I got another two and pushed him into a lethal. So even though I didn't score any glory in the first round, it still went well for me because I weakened Molog so much. Right. But uh, game two was very different. He won the board roll off, and uh, because of the game we'd had, it definitely uh, helped me to pick my boards because I had a better board set up. I'd pick the star dial, which gives Rothgorn, he can hide behind those block decks as, well, as far away as he can. Um, but that came down, that was very, very tight. Uh, he was killing my Noblars and killing the Thrafnir at the start. He came off to a really good start. He was, I think, 9-2 up. And I had to make a big risk. I had to gather momentum in hand, uh, Spectral Wings, and I had Tome of Offerings. So I had to take a big risk and charge Hrothgorn up and kill the Stalag Squig so he'd get three glory. But it put me within striking range of Molog. 
uh, and I kind of thought that was the game. Uh, but I had to take the risk anyway. Um, mm-hmm. He came in, and I actually managed to get, like, I think it was three crit shields uh, in uh, a row uh, towards the end of the third round, wow. um, which really was really good luck on my part. And it probably should have went to game three in terms of how it was played. But I did get the the dice rolls on that on that last game just to, to fend off his attacks, and I'm sure he said about that as well. It was uh, it would have been very frustrating to be on the other end of that. But if I hadn't have took that risk, to, I wouldn't have been able to catch up on Glory. So it was still the right call, and uh, the risk kind of paid off. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I mean, you know, we've we've talked about this so much, especially on this podcast, where. You know, when there are two players so close in skill level, the random factors really do catapult and make are, and are those differentiators when it comes to those really tight, skillful games, right? So, yeah. you know, board roll off or dice roll off. And so it looks like, you know, both games in the semifinals and in the finals could have gone either way. But, you know, obviously you prepared for those matchups. You created a very tight deck. And then sometimes you know, you get the rules you need to carry on through the day. And, yeah. you know, you just so happen to do that, which is awesome. And continued the dominance that is Hrothgorn. So yeah. what are what are your thoughts on, on your performance? Are you happy with how, how it turned out? Like, were, are there things that you would have done better now that you had seen what you faced and then what the meta looked like? Yeah, definitely. I was surprised at the lack of hordes that I played. I was kind of wanting to play them more, but it worked out okay for me because I got my wins. But uh, playing Molog in the worm spot and things you can't get the easy kills for, um, I think I probably would now. I used to not think putting to the end. I always get to the end of my power deck. Um, I could probably get to the end in there um, instead of maybe singled out or one of the other one glory cards as I could probably do with just an extra bit of glory to get me over the edge. But the reason I didn't have it in there is that chance of uh, drawing Acolyte into the end in your opening hand can be a bit of a problem. But I feel like I have the surges and the other cards to be able to drop drop to the end and still get through the game if that did happen. So that would probably be something I would change just to get me a slight extra glory. Yeah, sounds like it could have helped. Any other comments or feelings on how you ended the day? Yeah, I was very happy that the way it worked out, especially because I was the ones I was with. Mala was the one I was worried about the most, and I played him twice over the two days and was able to get four wins out of four in those games. So I was very happy about uh, the way it ended up in the end. There's also a lot of people were saying to me, maybe Hrothgorn can be played dif- uh, in a different way, more aggressively, and things like this and that can be the best way to play them but I've always kind of committed the idea that this is the optimum way to play Hrothgorn so at least I have some something to back me up now <laughs> no absolutely you do you've, you've won a pretty large event why do you yeah. think Hrothgorn has been doing so well well it's the mix is he's got some very easy surges um I mean unexpected cunning is is broken for 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 a start um as well as the things that he he does well um like uh, destroying objectives as part of his game plan, which can feed into stopping the other very powerful uh, play style at the minute, which is from scoring like Thorns and Grimwatch, etc., from scoring high, from standing on objectives. Uh, he's also, his range attack for two damage um, is very strong. Um, can take out a lot of the hordes. And also then a survivability. I mean, the cards Tough and Hide and Massive Bulk, even if you're not playing a Tomes build, 
that's he's so hard to kill and he can just get in the middle and you know cause havoc I think against any warband there's no warbands I think that are a bad matchup for Hofgorn at the minute mm-hmm. no matter what play style you choose to do with him and what is your advice for people who are trying to take down Hofgorn um, that if they, if you know they're playing a build like me then even if there's easy kills around them like the getting the Noblars maybe you want to get that glory or get using the tactical Thrafnir just go for Hofgorn if you can and get that damage on him early especially before he gets tough and tied because it's sometimes uh, I might want you to be putting on a put out the Noblar put out Thrafnir just use them for scoring gather momentum and the hope that you're going to waste a couple of activations going for them so that I can just power up Hrothgorn and then uh, it gets to the point where you don't have enough attacks left to kill Hrothgorn. So my advice would be to go after Hrothgorn as soon as you can. Well, thanks for the advice and, and congratulations again on your amazing performance. Do you have any last things you'd like to say or anyone to shout out? No, I just said to everyone, all my uh, people I competed against, uh, particularly Tom and Mike, who in the semi and final they were just some very tense games and i'll always remember them they were they were nail biters and uh had a lot of fun awesome well benny congratulations again on an amazing run and, and thank you so much for uh being a guest on the episode today we really enjoyed it yeah thanks very much for having me it's a pleasure absolutely take care all right bye. and that concludes the interview with benny i'm gonna switch it back over to jonathan and you'll probably hear us right where we left off before the interview started I think we're going to go ahead and move on to the listener questions that uh, people had for you guys. Um, the first one is from Jungle Cat. Um, yeah, I guess he says, I'm not sure if your episode is going to be about this topic, but he wants to uh, know what your thoughts were on the event. Um, you both placed very well. Um, were there any horrible mistakes? Any moments that you realized you made a horrible mistake? <laughs> <laughs> There was one really horrible mistake that I hadn't mentioned. So I did say that in the Harrows matchup, when I got boards, it was great. And when when I had the tokens, it was bad, right? I picked tokens. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. In game one, I lost the roll-off and he chose to have the tokens, right? So I got the wide boards and demolished him. And then I was like, right, well, he wanted tokens, so I'm going to take the tokens. But obviously by that point, we'd realized that he'd made the mistake first game and I just happily handed it back to him. It was like, here we go. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that was dumb. Um, so yeah, that was one of them. Uh, and then obviously the encroaching shadow one was less of a horrible mistake. And I think more of just tournament fatigue, um, not putting the encroaching shadow on Quiv and putting it on the Hrothcorn. But yeah, other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with how I played. I'm really happy with it. Okay. Um, and then the next one is just, um, was it matter what you guys expected? Were there any big surprises there? Or and it can just be yes or no. So I was mildly surprised at the lack of people who played Rothcorn. I know it was six. Yeah. And I know he won because Benny played incredibly and had a good deck. But I was surprised there weren't more at that. I was honestly suspecting, expecting something crazy, like 30% of the field to be Rothcorn players. Mm. Um, I actually would make the mild case, because it's not a strong one, I don't think, but that Rothcorn was actually slightly underrepresented at this tournament because people like Duncan Bills and Derek had previously done incredibly well with him. They just wanted to play something different. I think if those players had taken Hrothgorn to this tournament, he would have done even better. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, the last question is for Tom um, from Compaq. He says he played you in game four 
and you took him apart um, with the Nurgle. He said he'd only played them once before, and uh, you played them extremely well. Um, he was surprised by that. Um, he says his cheeky question would be, um, how do you think you go about beating that deck? Um, kill, well, kill Septimus, um, and you can go in early. So I think I think Nurgle struggle against early aggro um, because they need to inspire first. I think, uh, as I've said at the start, I was afraid of big fighters um, because uh, you can't do that damage early. Specifically with Thorns, if you get like an early sudden appearance with the Briar Queen that inspires her, and you can take down a key fighter, then that is like game changing. Um, so you you say you, you draw that card and you're, that that is your card into this. So you sudden appearance next to Septimus. If I don't have a push, you inspire, um, and then you get a good roll. You can win. You can win off that, um, and then just every push push me back. Um, I think that's the way you go. Um, but I do think that I got very fortunate in that game, and that I ended up with Tome of Offerings on Fecula with two hammers because he'd maddened and cackled her, and I still managed to get three kills. So can't take all the credit and you did play very very well into what was a very difficult matchup the other way to beat worm spat is to play Molog. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i think that makes sense um cool i think that is everything um that we had um for this part of the episode did you guys have anything um that you else you wanted to say or where can we find you what can we expect um from still city give us the plug um so oh do you you want me to mention uh you guys you you're already here um (laughs) i don't want uh, my main thing that i wanted to say was a a big thank you to shuby for running the event i can't imagine how stressful that was um and without him we wouldn't have had an event at all so like really really thank you to him um and you should check out our articles on these decks so that you can play them better than us that would be great Yeah, I know um, Mike just had an article um, already. Is yours out yet, Tom? It'll be out. Wait, we're doing this on the Sunday. I'm going to drop it on the Monday, the 1st of June in the evening. Okay, uh, great. Um, my article for the stats and everything um, will be available by the time this article or this uh, podcast is out as well. And uh, I think uh, those should all be really exciting. And, um, um, I, since we're all plugging articles, I, I, I wrote an article on what I would have played in the event. So if you want to go check cool. that out on my uh, site. And then also, of course, do you guys want to reveal when you're going to end the Chat and Crit series? Oh, so unfortunately, just because I've had a really, I've got a really busy week next week, I wanted it to get it out next weekend, but that's just become impossible with my rotor. So it's going to be not this weekend coming. It'll be next weekend. So what is that? That'll be like the, the 13th, 14th of June is when I'm aiming for. Um, which takes a lot of pressure off me because I was really rushing to cram everybody in to record for it. Um, but we're going to have a how many, like, I think probably maybe even eight or nine guests. It's going to be great. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, I think that is going to be everything. Um, thank you guys so much for joining us on the episode. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, thanks, thanks for having, having us. Me. And uh, if anybody has any feedback, questions, or comments, let us know on Facebook at Path to Glory Podcast. You can also follow us on Podbean, where you can find the show notes for the episode. We'll make sure to include all the decks and links to everything we talk about and all the articles. Um, You can also rate us on iTunes, and we have a Discord channel you can join as well um, if you want to chat with us. So thanks for listening, and we wish you the best of luck on your Path to Glory.
I found my Godsworn trophy under here. 